0: Also, Mike, you go first this time. Good. Glad we set that up. Okay. There,
1: there, there you, there. you go. Today's, you know, this episode is also brought to you by Spicy Nuggets, given that it is the same day. Um. <clears throat> All right, guys. I got a pretty straightforward question for you guys. What was your favorite, favorite? Blah, blah. Let me back that one up.
0: That was pretty straightforward, Kyle. What is your favorite fear? You know, Kyle, it wouldn't have been as bad if you hadn't set it up with, all right, guys, I got a pretty straightforward pretty question, straight question for you. What's your favorite <laughs> <for> you? <laughs> 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 Start, have it, it. Have start it. it all over and take your time. Just yeah. start from the no. top.
1: Yeah, I know what I think the issue How now,
0: brown cow? How now, brown
1: cow? How now, brown cow? Well, what? No Listen, Jesus listen. Christ. Alright. Are, are you we got are you the what? It's Funny that we're talking right? about a
2: cartoon as Kyle has now turned into our porky pig. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What's your favorite fairy tales, kid? Oh boy. Anyway. Lord. Um, oh. That's that's the
0: that's the cut. We're keeping the porky pig. Can I so. say it would be so great if after all this Tom didn't have an answer? <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, okay. All right, let's hope Kyle can remember English right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, gentlemen. What was your favorite fairy tale as a kid?
0: You know, I I think, and it's hard to know the influence, the ones that I gravitated to was I really enjoyed the stories from the Arabian Nights. Um, uh, Aladdin and Sinbad. I always liked those stories. Um, I think that comes from, maybe part of that is, you know, uh, Disney's Aladdin comes out in 1992. And I had, I remember there was a Bugs Bunny movie that was Bugs Bunny's Arabian Nights, which did all of the little segments. I feel like, especially in the 90s, the Arabian Nights were being mined a lot for stories. Uh, and I don't know if that's really the case anymore, but I feel like there was a lot of those in the 90s, the the Scheherazade, you know. And that, and, and so I really enjoyed Story of Aladdin. I always liked Jack and the Beanstalk, which could also be because of Mickey doing Jack and the Beanstalk, um, Mickey and the Beanstalk. But, I don't know. I just feel like I always gravitated to those, the fairy tales that had an element of adventure to them, especially where you kind of were going from one place to another, to another, and you got to see all these different worlds. So uh, probably, yeah, Aladdin, Sinbad, Jack of the Beanstalk, those kinds of stories.
2: Um, okay. So you're genuinely not going to believe this, but we, there was no fairy tales in my home. We, they just, my, fa- my parents just didn't like introduce that to us. So I just didn't, I didn't grow up in fairy tales. I I grew up with this stuff, and I genuinely just, like, I I didn't have, like, the resources as a child with parents who didn't know these things. There was no internet. I just, I I just didn't have them. I I did not grow up having a favorite uh, fairy tale.
0: That's, that's, that's the end there?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Damn it. I'm not, like, I, that's literally. You were right.
1: (laughs) Holy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh. To be clear, to be clear, I'm not laughing at you, Tom. I, I honestly, I love the answer. I just love that at the beginning of this, it was Tom's not going to have an answer in the middle of this. And it's like, no, I had an answer. It was that I didn't have an answer because I don't have a favorite. Fairy tale. Oh, I love it. Boy. Wow. Okay. Oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping the porky pig. Thing, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work you go so let us help you get through that morning commute. We're talking 1937 Snow White and the Seven Dwarves here on You're Missing Out with special guest Jordan Beck.
0: Our guest today is the Chief Operations Officer for Fun Academy Media Group, who's also a producer and a voice actor in the animated film Sergeant Stubby. Jordan Beck joins us today to talk about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves.
3: Hey guys, uh, really glad to be here.
0: Jordan, I'm so glad you, you came to join us. We, uh... We haven't met, met, but we, we Twitter met through a, a mutual uh, friend of ours, which is uh, Alec Gillis, a.k.a. Vice Victus, who was uh, on our show previously talking best years of our lives. He and I both bonded over independently coming to uh, your film, Sergeant Stubby, and both being uh, big fans of it. So we're s- so glad to have you on here to, to talk about this.
3: Oh, no, I think it's really great. And when you told me the concept of what we're doing here, I think it was, uh, I think what, what you're doing with this particular podcast is, is really, I, I mean, I don't want to, you know, like, chuff you up too much, but I think it's important, you know, what we were just talking about, um, giving people an understanding of why classic films became classics. Oh, please, chuff, chuff us up as much as you can. Oh, good. (laughs) Right, and your hair is great, too. Oh, if only you could (laughs) see (laughs) us.
0: One of us might not have any, so, uh, you know.
2: Yeah, I'm Italian.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted to have you on for this particular film, because, you know, part of what we do when we're picking guests is we want to make sure we can bring people on who have a unique perspective. And I was thinking about the fact that this film is notably, it's considered the first feature length animated film, technically not entirely true because there was the adventures of Prince Ahmed and a couple of other earlier stop motion films, but this is the first feature length technicolor film, the first feature feature-length American film, uh, animated film. And when Walt Disney was doing that, of course, everybody was calling it, Walt's Folly and the incredible difficulty of putting together uh, a feature length animated film without that kind of structure in place. And you, of course, know firsthand what that's like, having put together, you know, helped put together uh, a feature length animated film independently yourself. You know, that was you were you were a part of the team that put together uh, Sergeant Stubby. Could you talk a little bit before we get into Snow White about about your roles on on Sergeant Stubby?
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So for those who aren't familiar, um, Sergeant Stubby, uh, it's known in the U.S. as Sergeant Stubby, an American hero. And it's known in Canada and the U.K. and Ireland as um, Sergeant Stubby, an unlikely hero, is the uh, 3D animated family film uh, based on the true story of the most decorated dog in American history. Um, one of the things we're, we're proud of with this film, it is as it is actually the first animated film of its kind ever to be based on a true story. Um, sure, you have your your Baltos and your Pocahontases in the back in, in the past, but you know I hate to break it to our listeners, but uh, willow trees can't sing, um, and I'm still not sure what a blue corn moon is. So you know there there was a real person named Pocahontas, there was a real dog named Balto, but those were used as a jumping off point to tell um, a, a you know sort of standard fairy tale. Uh, we wanted to use the animation medium and in particular the, the CGI family animation medium um, to tell a, a true story and use it in a way that really it hadn't been uh, utilized for on such a large scale. Um, and that's going to come back into play when we get into talking about Snow White, because Walt Disney was trying to use the, the nascent technology of animation to do something that hadn't been done before um animation is an amazing uh tool uh it is not as a lot of people will like to pigeonhole it a genre animation is not a genre animation is a medium and that medium can be used to tell stories in a million different genres uh so walt disney tended to use it for fairy tale and fantasy uh 70 years later 80 years later we looked at this uh medium and realized what's been used for for fantasy and fairy tale for so long, but what if we used it to tell um, a a true story? Uh, But using that family-friendly medium in a way that uh, was still accessible to kids. So Stubby tells the true story of the most decorated dog in American history. He was a little uh, stray, pity, Boston Terrier, Heinz 57, All-American street mutt, who was rescued uh, by a soldier training for World War I, a guy named Robert Conroy, and wound up in the trenches in World War I. Now, at the time, uh, there was no such thing as a military working dog program, and certainly when you think of those these days, you think of like German Shepherds, Belgian Malinois, like big dogs, right? Not small little uh, runts. But, uh, so he had no formal military training, and the only uh, thing they did teach him was they taught him how to salute. So when a commanding officer found him on the boat and says, uh, how did this dog get here? The dog sat down and raised his paw to his, uh, to his forehead. Um, And we show that in the film. That's actually one of the things people say, oh, well, they just made this up for for dramatic effect. No, that actually is part of the historical record. They taught the dog how to salute. Um, And he took part in uh, in four major offensives, 18 months in theater, 17 major uh, battles. He was awarded the Purple Heart. Uh, later. Uh, and he was, uh, after the war, he came home, he led victory parades around the country. He met three sitting presidents. He went to the White House twice. He was awarded a medal uh, in 1921 uh, by General John Pershing, the commander of the American Expeditionary Force. Um, so in 2018, that was the centennial of World War One's end. And we thought, what better way to bring this story or bring this period of history that kind of belongs to everybody. It's not just dry history channel, little flags and maps going saying, and then these guys did this. And then these guys, did. no stories belong to us all. Um, and there is a way to make stories palatable and accessible to kids. And through this, again, this medium of animation that's so long been associated with family filmmaking, we found a way to make Stubby's story accessible. Now, to your point, Mike, um, all of that sounds great, but we did have to blaze a new trail uh, because the animation industry does have, you know, what it considers is an acceptable use for family animation, right? And acceptable storytelling styles. Um, So we started our company, Fun Academy Media Group. We're an Irish-American company uh, headquartered between Kinsale, Ireland, and I live in Columbus, Georgia, about an hour south of Atlanta. and we did the actual animation in France and Montreal. Uh, so it was a really international co-production from a a new voice in, uh, in family entertainment that was, was going up against some pretty entrenched preconceived notions of, of what family filmmaking and what animated filmmaking is and can be. Um and, you know we can. I I know we're here to talk about Snow White, so I won't go too deep into all of the you know intricacies of box office and theatrical release in, in 2018. But long story short, don't open an independent feature uh, against Avengers: Infinity War. Um, so I don't I don't know if you, like a pro tip for anybody uh, on that. Um, so we we opened wide. Uh, it was sandwiched between Rampage and Infinity War. Um, did not get a, a huge audience in its original theatrical release, but we've gotten great reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. We have excellent audience scores. Um, it's available on HBO Max uh, and for, for sale on Amazon. So people are still kind of finding this movie um, and realizing, hey, yeah, there's, there's a, a new company we've never heard of telling, uh, telling a, a true story we may have heard of on a Reddit post. Uh, a couple years ago, um, and and doing you know fact based animation in a way that my kids are actually enjoying learning history. Um, it's actually been you know I, I hate to to sound like I'm like profiteering off of this, but one potentially positive outcome of uh, quarantine is you know when people found themselves unexpectedly homeschooling is looking for um, for different you know things to keep their kids engaged that had some some substance uh to them and so we found a lot of people you know finding us and going oh wow did you hear about this movie and i'm sitting here watching twitter going yeah i heard about it two years ago when i made it
0: <laughs> now one little uh, before we get in the snow i just want to point out my favorite little fact about sergeant stubby production wise is that uh what the some of the animators like micros image was one of the companies that worked on it right in the animation
3: yeah they did the they did uh all the cg
0: yeah and they did uh they produced the last two Uh, asterisk and obelisk films which is based on the french comic books uh what i love about that is that uh most famous for playing uh obelisk is gerard Depardieu, who is also in your film because you have uh, you have logan lerman uh helen and bonham carter gerard Depardieu, and this fella named jordan beck are all voices in this film
3: yeah so um yeah, it the Mikros is kind of an interesting one in that because as we talk about, uh, you know, the, the sort of like the standard for what animated filmmaking can be, especially in this country, you know, it, other other countries, I, I you know have sort of an America, um, you know, centric perspective on what family animation can be because other countries and other cultures do different things, but Mikros has become a first choice service provider, so actually. Um, they do asterisks in, uh, in France, and we did our storyboards in France, but then it got transported over to Montreal to do the CG work. Um, but right before us in the queue was DreamWorks' Captain Underpants. Huh. Um, so if you look at the credits of Captain Underpants and Sergeant Stubby, it's almost identical because they rolled straight off of that. That was actually a big deal. Um, DreamWorks actually laid off a lot of folks in, in L.A., uh, and then, uh, started outsourcing with Captain Underpants because I realized, wow, the quality is really great and we can, you know, get, uh, tax incentives by doing the production in Montreal. So, um, so when the animators and there's actually a shortage of animators in Montreal cause it's such an in-demand place. So you kind of, uh, as a producer, you have to pitch the crew um on on them volunteering basically to to be part of your production and not going across the street to Sincide or real effects or somewhere else and jumping on another production and routinely we got people who again all over the world very few Americans in the in the crew um who were really excited coming off of Captain Underpants to do something so different uh and now i've kept up with a lot of those guys and they're on uh Spongebob. Uh the new Sponge uh was it Sponge on the Run is the new one. Um mm-hmm. that's a Micros production. Uh a lot of guys that I know who worked on Stubby have been on Scoob, they were on the Playmobil movie. Um, you know, some of them even like the VFX guys went over and did like Deadpool 2. Uh so it's it's really interesting to see the the breadth and the type of work that that people who worked on Stubby have gotten before and since and Stubby's just this really, really strange outlier uh in in all of their careers um because there's never been anything like it before or since for them
0: now we're going to dive into uh snow white and to start that off i am going to read the national film registry statement as to why they inducted it and then we're going to get into our own reasons for why we think it matters so the registry said a virtual watercolor painting come to life the details in the disney animation never fail to amaze The kind and beautiful Snow White charms every creature in the kingdom except one, her jealous stepmother, the Queen. When the magic mirror proclaims Snow White the fairest one of all, she must flee into the forest, where she befriends the lovable seven dwarves. When the Queen tricks Snow White with a magic apple, only a kiss from her true love can save her. So that's why the registry says uh, they inducted it. Now, Jordan, I will let you know about these. Uh, We never know what we're getting with the registry statements. Sometimes they're a full paragraph. Sometimes they're just a plot synopsis. At least we got this opening line that says something more than just the story. Right. But, uh, you know, still not a lot. But it is one of those ones that it's a little rough. I mean, we've talked about this before with this show and kind of the dilemma we have uh, sometimes with these movies is you would think if you were going into this like, oh, Star Wars will be easy. But the crowd will be hard. And it, it sometimes is the opposite because movies like Snow White or Star Wars or The Wizard of Oz, like these films we grew up with, there's this instinct to kind of go, you know, well, why does it matter? Well, because it's it's Star Wars or it's Snow White. Like these are obvious. There is something about this that's so you know, essential. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to us kind of digging into this and finding what works.
3: Well, I think one one thing right off the bat there, um, you're right when you say that we grew up on these films. Mm-hmm. Um, we grew up on on Star Wars, and Star Wars to us means uh, goofy 70s hair and an original trilogy and maybe even a Christmas special, right? Depending on mm-hmm. how hip your, your older siblings were. <laughs> um, but when it comes to something like Snow White... It's an ingrained part of American culture. And yet people, I'm going to make a gross generalization uh, because we can do that these days. Um, This is for the internet. So it's the land (laughs) of gross generalizations. But people under the age of probably, you know, maybe even as as old as 30 may have never seen Snow White. Um, They will have seen things that reference Snow White. They will have maybe gone to Disney World uh, or Disneyland and ridden a ride based off of Snow White. But, um, it's, it, you know, the, the older these movies get and the more things come along that, that reference, but, you know, maybe surpass commercially, um, these sort of, uh, cornerstone, uh, productions, the more you find that, that even the, the most well-versed of audiences may have skipped that one. Um, you know, they, and, and they can, because they, they get the idea, you know, you were reading that national archives thing and that was, it was inducted in 89, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So,
3: so the audience that was part of the induction there had all seen Snow White. Um, and so they kind of glossed over it cause it's like, yeah, we've all seen Snow White. So here's the basic plot. But now, I mean, it, there are, I, I would hazard a guess that the majority of Americans have not seen it. Um, At this point, even though they're familiar with the character uh, and they're familiar with uh, about that paragraph's worth of story, but they may have never actually seen the the movie itself.
2: Yeah, I I would I would say that's probably true, too. I mean, that's kind of uh, I don't know, with a lot of movies, like kind of elementally just like, oh, yeah, it's Snow White. It's kind of easy to just like not see it. You just kind of like, oh, well, I get it, you know, and. I, don't, I think there's a lot of other reasons that have kept Snow White maybe out of um, some of the youth's hands, but uh, we could get into that uh, a little further into the episode. But yeah, because I, I, I didn't see it for the first time until um, 2016.
3: I was 26. Yeah. Yeah. And you probably saw it because you were like intentionally trying to fill a gap, right?
2: Yeah, I was just like, oh, you know what? Like, I hope to have a family one day. I I'm a big Blu-ray collector, so like, I want to own all these Disney animated movies so I could have them for my kid, uh, my kids or whatever down the road, you know. And I, I was like, okay, and I I haven't seen most of the classic movies at this point, so I watched Snow White, and I was very much like, yeah, no, I mean, I'm glad I watched it, but it was also a bit of like, yeah, I mean, I I kind of got it already. Yeah, I mean it's it's so enmeshed and ingrained into so many
3: things and um you know you uh, enough uh enough muppet show jokes over time you know seep into the cultural consciousness for for movies like this or uh Wizard of Oz is another one um yeah. that I I I personally I know I'm here talking about Snow White but I would say that the Wizard of Oz pound for pound is the greatest film ever made to me i think it, it just technologically story-wise performances everything in the wizard of oz works and checks um but and so i'm always surprised when i meet people who have never seen the wizard of oz uh because i think that one really holds up the the test of time you know the songs still still get you the the colors still wow you um but oh, yeah. people but they know it like oh yeah the wizard of oz i know that there's the witch and there's the girl and she clicks her feet and you know everything's fine um i saw the one with mila kunis well no then you didn't see the wizards of oz but you saw Well, it
2: i don't think it. anybody actually did see that
0: one so <laughs> i mean um, tom tom you know i saw it you i know saw it, it in the theater was...
2: well you it was released by disney of course you see it. You see it. <laughs> yeah Hey I, I i saw it in the theater it's a it's a movie i saw it's a it's a good movie it's, it's certainly the last thing sam raimi's made um yeah <laughs> it's almost like it's it's not exactly the same one-to-one comparison because this movie is like really just not good, but it's almost that same sense of like after like a 100 years of cinema of all these movies inspired by this book and then you see John Carter and you go, oh, it, it really is just every sci-fi thing I've seen since like Flash Gordon serials and then Star Wars and Star Trek and all these things. And you go, oh, there's really nothing – It's different, I know, because you could still watch Snow White and be impressed by it, but it's that sense of just cultural saturation of just, and, I mean, not to really, you know, take this movie to task or anything, but there's really not much going on in the actual narrative of, like, Snow White for you to, like, be surprised when you watch it.
3: Yeah, Snow Snow White definitely needs a little more um, context and behind the scenes to be wowed by it.
0: Well, I think here's my thing with the Snow White that I find impressive because I, uh, I I tend to do a lot of deep dives before these because I'm a I'm a maniac with nothing else to do. Uh, I have no job. So one thing that's interesting is looking at the evolution of this film and how it came to be in terms of the genesis of of how it came to not just be a feature-length film, but how it came to be Snow White was going to be the feature-length film. Is kind of like most things involving Walt Disney in that it's shrouded in layers and layers and layers of myth. It's impossible to really. I mean, I have the. If anyone has read the giant Neil Gabler, uh, I was just going to reference
3: that. If yeah, yeah, if anybody's interested in Walt Disney, that's sort of the definitive work. It's it's a it's a little it, it's a little like insider access type. I mean, there's a there's there's some really good stuff. It, there are a couple points that it's you know upholding the myth.
0: Well, that's um, the thing. It's it's kind of feels like, you know, there's seven hundred pages of it because it has to go, Well, at one point Walt said him and Ub got the job because Walt was charming, but another time it said that it was his dad. It's like all kinds of Right, his. right, right. So with Snow White, it's hard to decipher um obviously a big influence on Walt was there was a nineteen sixteen silent version of Snow White. Uh so I watched that, uh, you know, earlier and it's so it's an hour long silent film it is so insanely plot heavy <laughs> uh it's like spends so much time on oh, i'm the prince and the prince was supposed to go off to war and he was betrothed to his cousin but then he met snow white and he was charmed by her and then the wicked queen told the huntsman who we've seen the husband huntsman has a wife and kids and the wicked queen said if you don't kill snow white i'll lock them in the tower and it just spends so much time getting to where it's going and with that in mind, then watching this Snow White, you know, you, you kind of see where it was like, all right, we can we can cut things down a bit. The other influential Snow White film that Walt will probably never acknowledge, well, would have never acknowledged. He is, in fact, no longer uh, with us Yeah, until uh, they
3: unfreeze him and ask him.
0: But the other Snow White that's that's hugely important um, that would not be acknowledged really is the Fleischer Snow White. Betty Boop. Yes, the Betty Boop, the seven-minute, which we will be covering in a future season of this show because that's also in the registry.
3: Oh, I didn't realize but, um, they had shorts in there as well.
0: Oh, they have they have shorts. They have documentaries. They even have uh, Let's All Go the Lobby is in there. The Zapruder <laughs> film is in there. We're going to be having some weird times soon. Um, oh, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. So Betty Boop is, uh, you know, the Betty Boop Snow White, which is about seven minutes long, and it is essentially using... The plot of Snow White—it's very briefly just Evil Queen, Betty Boop. Betty Boop winds up in a coffin, and then it just becomes a rotoscope of Coco the Clown uh, doing Saint James Infirmary.
3: And it's and it's actually uh, Cab and, and Calloway and that they're rotoscoping. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes, it's the Cab Calloway Saint James Infirmary, which is it uh, the same? They would use him for Minnie the Moocher and the Old Man of the Mountain, and uh, but so that comes out in 1933. And the best I can parse, because it's all a myth, but it seems like Walt maybe wanted to do a feature at that point. Anyway, maybe he didn't. Seeing that Betty Boob Snow White reminded him of the 1916 Snow White that he had seen so many times. And that was like the decision of we're going to do it. We're going to make a feature because at this point, shorts were not making a profit as much anymore. You know, the, the animated shorts were... Costing more and more, and they were bringing in less and less. So it's the same way that Charlie Chaplin recognized I have to step away from doing the shorts and start making features. Uh, Walt kind of recognized the same thing and ended up bringing in uh, Grim Natwick, who was one of the early designers of Betty Boop, to design Snow White. So if you look uh, at the early designs for Snow White, and they even have it in the special features on Disney+, Plus, so anyone can see these. The early designs for Snow White have the tiny lips and the big eyes and are more curvaceous and look much, much more like Betty Boop. But uh, Walt did not appreciate how raunchy she was, and so asked them to go for a, more, uh, a less provocative look because, well, that's Walt Disney. He was a complicated man.
3: Yeah, well, and it's a it's a less provocative look, and also one of the things that's really interesting in the character design. Even though there was very little rotoscoping that was allowed into Snow White, um, they uh, the the three you know primary human characters, if you will, um, all have that that very telltale uh, rotoscope look to yes. them, right? That very, um, I mean, they the Snow White prince charming and the evil queen look like dancing cab calloway rotoscope they look like uh you know later rotoscope cinderella uh with this no nose thing mm-hmm. that was that was apparently all the vogue and i mean you even start seeing it in like bokshi films later you know rotoscoping just has this foreshortening problem with with human facial features um and you see that still in in Snow White even though they tried to do as much actual animation versus rotoscoping as possible but then it, it really comes alive when you deal with the fantastic characters like when you get to the dwarves and when the evil queen goes uh goes witch um the the character design is so much stronger and bolder um and the animation is so much more uh i, I mean yeah it's broader but it's also more detailed um like they the the guys who were making this film really had more of a feel i think for the for the for the gag um which is what they'd been doing beforehand in the shorts in the silly symphonies um in mickey mouse and and donald duck they'd been they'd been working on the gag uh for years and walt was originally a gag guy and i don't know if it was with Snow White, in particular, if it happened a little bit before that, Walt wanted to start steering away from gag um, and get more into story. Um, but certainly, when he decides to make a feature-length film, uh, he he decides to tell a story versus focus on seven minutes of laughs. Um, and so it it what whenever that decision starts to be made, you see it sort of you know, like at its at its peak uh, with Snow White.
0: And gags were still important. In fact, he had a policy at the studio. It was open to anyone who worked uh, on the lot, which was the old Hyperion studio. It's not the studio that that's uh, there today but uh, in Burbank. But uh, anyone could submit a gag. And if your gag got in the movie, you got $5, which, judging by inflation, would be about $85 today. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he. Them
3: he had five bucks a gag but he, there was still a lot that got cut because he was now focused on on story more than laugh yes um so they even threw away final animation which uh, one of the things you know to to steer it back to to me um one of the things with our film that we realized again making a movie that we were independently financing outside the studio system is final animation is expensive um so you want to avoid throwing away animation, because it's not like live action, where when you go to film school, they say, you know, film is cheap, keep shooting, Um, especially in the digital era and animation. That's not true. So when when you read about Walt Disney, they animated these sequences and then he just said, no, it doesn't serve the story. Cut it. I mean, for the guys who animated those sequences, that must have just been a heart attack uh, because they I mean, they got paid for it, but that was, you know, months of work that just got canned. Um and so yeah for Walt Disney he wanted to he started as a gag guy I mean he started doing comic strips and most of the animators at Walt Disney Studio at the time were not trained artists they were comic strip uh artists. Um so everybody was was really well honed on making simple characters do funny things. Um and when you see the the very first uh of the the rubber hose style steamboat Willie uh, Mickey Mouse, and even before that, with like Ubaiworks and and the Alice cartoons and everything else, it was all about doing as much um, in in service of the laugh. But Snow White is the first time that it's no longer in service of the laugh; it's in service of the story. Uh, and that was a a new
2: thing in animation. Certainly, it's it's you know it's not a gag movie. It's definitely going more for like a tone and a visual feast for the eyes and all that. But the dwarves, they they get a lot of, again, they're doing some gags.
3: Well, the, the original draft of the film was about the dwarves. It wasn't about Snow White. Um, it was supposed to be like 80 plus minutes of dwarves being funny. And then at some point he, he kept chipping away and chipping away and suddenly realized that instead of just being a gag reel for animated dwarves, which would have been funny, may have been successful, maybe not, may have gotten played out, frankly, over that much time. Um, unless your gags are are surefire hits. If you've ever watched something, a, a feature length film, that's a gag a minute, man, you got to land them um, because it's not like in in TV. I mean, jumping way way later, but like something like Futurama or The Simpsons, where like the whole Matt Groening thing is keep shooting jokes because if this one doesn't land, the next one will. Well, have you ever tried watching a movie like that, you know, it's, it's exhausting um, because either every gag hits and it's a Marx Brothers movie and it's fantastic or your, your ratio of, you know, work 60% of the time, every time is, is just a, a recipe for failure uh, in a, in a feature length film without a story. So um, to make the decision to have, Uh, this, this like bounty system for gags for the dwarves, but then make it even more competitive by changing the focus of the film from dwarf gags to a a story. And now the gags suddenly have to fit um, is, is one of the things that I think, you know, uh, typifies Snow White for its time. And not only that, but Snow White, Unlike a lot of these movies, um, I'll go with uh, you know two of my favorite movies ever made, uh, The Wizard of Oz and It's a Wonderful Life. Um, both of them are, are absolutely fantastic films and I think stand the test of time now, but they were oh, yeah. not major hits at the time. Oh, um, it took 10 years for The Wizard of Oz to recoup its budget in box office because that was pre-TV. And uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, you know, basically put its studio out of business until somebody forgot to renew the copyright and so NBC started broadcasting it on Christmas 30 years after it came out. Um, so there are so many stories in in what we would consider classic films now that at the time weren't successes. Snow White is actually one of those weird anomalies. Oh, and then a lot of films that were successful in their time become problematic later. Gone with the Wind is a great example, right? Huge box office hit, but another movie that people don't, really see very much anymore because of other reasons
0: oh we believe me we we covered that on a on a previous uh
3: yeah so like yeah so either the films are like huge hits and everybody forgets about them or they're huge flops and 30 years later somebody realizes that it's free to show on tv but snow white is actually the rare film that um is was was a huge success at the time and even though a lot of people haven't seen the movie uh, these days, they're still culturally aware of it. Um, you can make a Snow White and the Seven Dwarves reference in any children's show right now, and the kids are going to get that. Whereas, you make a Gone with the Wind joke, and you know SpongeBob, and it's going to go over a lot of heads.
0: And I think there's something to the fact that I mean, obviously, part of that, and and we should note by the way, you mentioned Gone with the Wind. Uh, Sleeping Beauty uh, broke the box office record for highest grossing film of all time that was held by Birth of a Nation. And then uh, that record was overtaken two years later by Gone with the Wind. So it's in a it's in a problem sandwich.
3: Snow White, not Sleeping Beauty. Yes. Snow White, yes, my mistake.
0: Snow White, yes. Sleeping Beauty would come much later than even those films, yes. But yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely. That's, that's actually a really interesting point. Um, and when you adjust for inflation, Gone with the Wind and Snow White are still two of the most successful films of all time. Thankfully, Birth of a Nation is not.
0: Yeah, well, part of it too is that snow white was one of these things that uh, because disney you know before home video they would re-release it and people would just go i have to see it again Mm -hmm. there was this this feeling about i mean uh john belushi had that great routine in the first season of saturday night live where he talked about seeing uh snow white at radio city music hall uh when they were thinking of shutting down radio city or he did he went on some random i remember seeing snow White. you know there's
3: I saw Snow White in 1997 in the re-release. I think it was 97, right? Um but there was a there was a nationwide re-release. Yeah, for the for the 60th anniversary. Um and my mom took me to a theater to see Snow White because she by God was going to make sure that I had a chance to see Snow White uh the way that she had seen it growing up in the in the 50s. Well,
0: that That's was funny. I mean that was also we can get into that, but that was also the Eisner uh era of recognizing, "Oh, we have all this IP. We have all this stuff yeah let's make use of it which is you know uh privately tom and i always arguing about studios not understanding what they've got on their hands and to their that's the one thing disney recognized you know walt uh, had a very good sense of branding and then when eisner and uh katzenberg came in they had that same sense and snow white really is the template for not just, you know, what all right, you mentioned that America has a very limited idea of the animated film and, and Snow White is is partly to blame for that. And I I love yeah. the film, but it is this yeah. thing of everyone was just like, "Oh, do that." In fact, 2 years later, Fleischer in an attempt to catch up with Disney, uh cuz they were like Disney's main rival. We always think of it as Disney and and Looney Tunes, but it really yeah, that's way later. Yeah. yeah. Fleischer was giving them a run for their money. Fleischer were the ones using the multiplane camera initially? Upiworks um, was too, but Fleischer was using the multiplane camera for Popeye yeah, the Sailorman. Gone Simba. by
3: the time Snow White came out. Like, oh, he, he was he doing. Liked. I
0: mean, he was doing yeah. his own stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Up um, yeah. was doing his own stuff with multiplane. Then um, Fleischer starts doing the multiplane with with um, Simbad the Sailor, Popeye the Sailor meets Simbad the Sailor. But they were using a horizontal multiplane camera. Walt uh, had the idea, and and his team were doing a vertical multiplane camera. Which, for anybody who's, who's listening who has no idea of what that is, it was basically the idea of, uh, you know, when, you, when you're watching, if you watch Snow White or the Old Mill, and you notice how the camera can actually kind of do these panning shots or zoom in and zoom out and the environment moves around them, it, it adds a, a, a new dimension to the animation. So they were using a camera that was elevated and it would lower down and raise up, moving through the planes and the layers of, of the frame. Uh, and they tested that out on Old Mill and then did that more in full with, with Snow White. Fleischer was trying to felt one-upped by the feature. So I, I mentioned it to Kyle before as kind of the rivalry between the Beatles and the Beach Boys of who can do more weird tech stuff. Um, Fleischer made Gulliver's Travels two years later. And it's so desperately trying to be Snow White. You know, it's using the Lilliputians instead of the dwarves. and But they still have songs. It's still following the exact formula and uh, so much worse, almost interminable. But everything is trying to follow that. And of course, Disney tries to follow that recipe after a bit not right away though i want to say to their credit he doesn't immediately do another princess film
3: so so disney doesn't immediately do another princess film after snow white but that's where you start to get into those like tragic if only we'd known how good this was going to be later stories right because he follows up snow white with pinocchio which i think is of the of the original um disney features is is probably the the true masterpiece Um, but Pinocchio wasn't a hit. Bambi wasn't a hit. Fantasia was truly Walt's folly because he tried to install this, this wackadoo sound system that no, uh, no theaters could actually run. So it had to, he had to put Fantasia on a road show where they like go around like a concert tour. Um, it's like the Grateful Dead rolling in with their wall of sound, uh, just to watch Fantasia. Um, so yeah, Walt was, Walt was definitely pushing the boundaries for years and it wasn't until he came around and was like, all right, princess movie, um, post-war. He, he, finally got the memo that if he wanted to keep this operation going and he wanted to keep pushing boundaries, he had to give him Cinderella, like give the people what they want here.
0: I mean, listen, we could, we could fill this entire podcast with just, uh, crazy Walt stories cause God knows I love them. And I, I, uh, give Tom that information whenever I come across it, uh, hopefully someday we get to talk about how walt basically convinced fdr to subsidize some of his movies
3: yeah and give him a trip to mexico too
0: yep yep it's like
3: yeah great great vacation plan
0: i live for it but, but with this you know I, I was saying to his credit though he didn't immediately do that but everybody's trying to do, it. and and still now that's our format whether it's being done sincerely as katzenberg uh and eisner pushed for in the disney renaissance or whether it's being done ironically and mockingly as Katzenberg would later do with Shrek. Like that's kind of become what we see animation as here in America. And that's because this was just the spectacle of all spectacles.
3: I mean, one of the things I've said about stubby and talking to, to folks about what fun Academy does and why we've done what we do is like, look, the, the animated film has been the realm of fantasy and fairy tales since Walt Disney said he wanted to make a princess movie like that's that set a standard and it was such a successful standard both artistically and financially um that that was the thing and now over time yeah it's it's either uh princess movie or fantastic comedy that's what animation is um and you have variations or blends of both some good some not you know you mentioned like um uh, the the Eisner years and the Disney Renaissance kind of having a, a, a genuine approach, but I would argue that it's it's genuine, but it's also cynical um, because there's a cynical cash grab, especially as it as it goes on uh, of like, all right, wh- where are we going to get our next version of the same uh, princess story? I know, what's Eddie Murphy up to? Let's send him to China um, to like that's you start to see a lot more of just grabbing for. Whatever the next princess IP can be, Um, and you see that you know I pick on 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 Disney right now, and you know I'm sure they're crying themselves to sleep in uh, Scrooge McDuck's money bin um, to 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 hear my criticism of some of their work in the 90s. Uh, But but you know, no, that's ridiculous. That's
0: imply. That's implying that either Jeffrey Katzenberg or Michael Eisner have anger problems. And that's that's completely no, unfounded.
3: patently, patently false.
0: Oh, let me just hide my copy of Disney War. We won't talk about it. <laughs> um.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but and and I say all of that as if I wasn't a voracious and still am a voracious consumer. My son is six, man. I mean, like we're you know, we, we were we paid three years in advance for Disney Plus because we knew what was coming. I bought Mulan the other day. Um, I have no
0: children, and I did all the same things. So you've like you, you
2: at least got an excuse. Mike is his own child. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I uh, I almost kind of uh, I don't know, kind of feel like uh, I don't know, I have a little anger, maybe not anger is the right word, but that sort of feeling towards Snow White because it 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 did send um, American animation down one path yeah. that we really 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 just cannot get out of. Like I mean. Even with Pixar, like for every Wally they do, which is really nothing like anything Walt was doing. It's not a fairy tale movie. There's no yeah. songs or anything. It's there's still like okay, these are for kids. There's a very strict formula. We can't really break out of it. Mike knows firsthand. This year, I I ran through every Hayao uh, Miyazaki movie, and I'm slowly working through the other Ghibli movies, and it makes me really really sad that we can't get movies like that in america of like we like you could still aim a movie at a child but you could also tackle deeper things break a formula a bit because i mean this is a guy who went from my neighbor totoro to kiki's delivery service to porco rosso and then (laughs) then does princess mononoke spirited away which is like i could i couldn't even possibly fathom an american child watching that movie without like having a tantrum then he falls then he does How's moving castle but then he just says oh i'm gonna do a kid's movie again here's a movie about a fish girl ponyo yeah man and it's like i wish we could get american movies that then do like yeah we're gonna make a movie about i mean you kind of did it but like a movie about a world a world war ii fighter pilot um engineer I mean you guys made a World War 1 movie about a dog like it's a real story uh, it it's as much as I do respect the movie and it's a visual feast it is just one of those things of like Man, I really do wish *Pinocchio* or *Fantasia* didn't send Walt having to like retreat to his safety blanket.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the things, and you get this in the Neil Gabler book, but one of the things about Walt Disney that, and he, yeah, he's a complicated guy, right? And I'm, I don't want to turn this into like a Walt, a Walt Disney apologism tour. Um, but I, you know, a lot of people have a lot of feelings on Walt Disney. Uh, These days, and a lot of them are predicated mostly on things that happened later in his life Um, after the strike, which he blamed on communism uh, and after all of the decisions he made that were so ardently anti-communist that it wound up having him like side with other people uh, who were also anti-communist, but also anti a lot of other things. Um, But Walt as a young man was what you would call a disruptor today. Um, and, and Snow White, for as very conservative as it feels now, was, a, was a disruptive film at the time. It wasn't an outsider film. You know, I mean, like Walt Disney was never Ralph Bakshi. Um, but it was certainly something as, as Mike was saying, it was called Walt's Folly when it was coming out. He was doing something that everybody's like, well, that's, that's not only impossible, but it's also stupid. Uh, and he he nailed it and showed people that you could use this technology in a certain way but of course the the business of entertainment being what it is sort of forced him as you were saying tom to, to kind of retreat into a um
2: all right play the hits again well it's even funny too because you see it after he dies too and i mean the infamous like dark period before oh
3: yeah you're talking about when like don bluth was running stuff yeah And i mean you
2: got you got stuff like the the black cauldron and they do they're like actually kind of trying to like do other things and it's just they just keep face planting and there's a you know there's an argument to be made well well those things they were making weren't good or not the best they could have done but there's still this sad sense of like Man, they're trying, and it's just the people just do not want anything outside of the little structure they have.
3: I'll I'll let Kyle
2: decide whether or
3: not he wants to bleep this, but the Fox and the Hound is f-ed up. I mean, like that is that is some rough stuff for for uh, uh, what you would consider now, um, and it was some rough stuff for what Disney considered because after the Fox and the Hound, a couple years later, Don Bluth
2: was out and Michael Eisner uh was brought in to to commercialize the ip i mean the black cauldron some crazy heavy metal nonsense of just like yeah it really is like i watched that this year uh well i guess maybe in december with disney plus but i watched it i was like yeah this movie's great this i mean it's just it's not the greatest thing in the world but like this is some this is heavy metal this is like really well animated i'm digging the hell out of this it's uh, but like as a part of me that's also kind of like, all right, well, those failures at least led them to making, you know, the great great mouse detective. And I do I grew up in the 90s, so I have more of an affinity towards Aladdin and the Lion King. But it, it's it's still just like, ugh, like they were always trying. And then every time they try, it's just no. And we're kind of I mean, seeing that again of them just very, very, very strictly sticking to a formula, even if it's not the best thing in the world to do.
3: One of the things that was interesting to me about Disney in 2012 is Disney put out one of my favorite Disney animated films they've ever made. um, And that's Wreck-It Ralph. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wreck-It Ralph is so brilliantly meta. So, I mean, it's got like the South Park member berries all over it, but in a really fun and engaging way, my son loves games. That's that's something that he's really interested in. And Wreck-It Ralph has been his favorite movie since he was born. Um, There's just something about that storytelling style. I mean, you know, a guy from Futurama helped Helmet. So there's certainly different layers. But I couldn't help but feel when I saw that movie, when it first came out in 2012, this feels like a Pixar movie. And if you remember, that's the same year that Pixar made a princess movie, Brave, Yep. which Patrick Doyle, who did the music for Brave, actually did the music for Stubby. And I love Patrick and I love his music and I like Brave. But I couldn't help but feel that the studios got inverted that that Pixar movie and, and brave should have been a Disney movie.
2: Well, I mean, cause Pixar went on a real kind of rough run while Disney's animation was really hitting a big, kind of strong stride for a bit there for you know wreck around frozen moana or you know they, yeah. they they were doing these things while pixar was like all right uh you guys want to see mike and sully in college i guess i don't know <laughs> hey i
3: like that movie more than old school i'm just throwing it out there hey I listen think-
2: i kind of i i dig the movie just because <laughs> you can never go wrong having billy crystal and john goodman just interacting even if it's a cartoon i'm still hey. waiting for that uh disney plus show come on guys we need content yeah exactly <laughs> you're running out are running out. I mean, Mandalorian's going to only be eight episodes. You can't keep us on the hook forever you, with eight episodes. You have my 30 Mulan dollars. Let's go. <laughs> they don't have mine. I'm going to I'm gonna sneak into Mike's house late at night and just watch it and just be like, ooh, this is mediocre.
3: Yeah, you're going to sneak into his house and go, well, that was a movie I saw.
2: This Well, was- that was a movie that Mike spent money on and I uh, didn't.
3: I, I mean, I yeah, I, I actually did like it, but Mulan, the animated film, is not one of my favorites.
2: No, it's not. Um, I mean, I I like it as much as like I, un- yeah. I I understand it's not really for me. I know kids will like it more. And I also know it's very important to uh to the female audience. But I just remember watching it and kind of why I do want to see Mulan. I just remember going like, oh, so all this, so- these songs and Disney crap is kind of stay- taking me away from like the story I want to see, which is the, the Mongolian war. <laughs> like, I want to see all this cool war stuff. <laughs>
3: And I'll, I'll say this about the new live-action one, and this actually will tie it back into Snow White, um, or you can cut it, but while we're here. Uh, so I felt like when they made this Mulan live-action, they they ripped out all of the the Disney princess movie tropes, right? They ripped out all of the stuff that Walt Disney started doing in 1937 that were still being done in 1998. Um, but they didn't replace that with something equally as fun yeah. Uh, I was thinking that Mulan live action was going to be like house of flying daggers. Like I yeah. thought they were, they, because all the marketing and everything looked like they were just going to go straight. Wuja, This is going to be, uh, this is going to be hero. This is going to be, you know, Shaolin soccer. Um, and they didn't replace the songs and the Eddie Murphy jokes with, I think enough, of like the Kung Fu craziness. And I think they did that even though they have stated that the Chinese market was really important. They were still looking at the American market being their primary and they didn't want to fill up the movie with a bunch of stuff that they were afraid Americans might think was cheesy or weird, but they do some wire fighting. I mean, not like all of it.
2: That's kind of feeling like the, I uh, will get. We'll quickly get back to that. I just feel like that's kind of the problem Disney's fun is hitting now, which is the problem they always seem to hit when they try to do new things. Which is just well, okay. I guess we got to just do the safe thing. Which in this case, making blockbusters is well. We got to just make sure everyone's happy, which is kind of leaving uh, nobody happy.
0: If I may, I just to, there's also an element that I often feel where I'm like, especially with this one, I you know with with Mulan when I watched it, which I think it's fine. I I, I you know I don't yeah, regret. I watching. like it. But I do sit back when I saw some of the reviews that were like, this is, in fact, a sin where I was like, what what did you want this to be like when I saw a review before the movie, before I saw the film, Tom sent me a headline that goes, well, you know, they they pretty much give uh, Mulan like the force. And I was like, oh, how are they going to do that? And then I watched it. and They go, you have strong chi. I'm like, I feel like that existed before the force, guys.
3: Yeah, you know, like yeah, no, like, back to the well. well, and also and, like getting Donnie Yen to deliver that. It's like, yeah. I'm one with a Chi and the Chi is with me.
0: Tom's right, you know, about Disney having to play it safe. I do kind of feel like they are so identified with a particular brand, with a particular vibe. And I it's not really a vibe that Walt himself ever pursued. I mean, yes, he made things that were uh, good for kids, but he was very clear about the fact that he just wanted to create things that were whimsical and he wanted to create things that were that an adult could go to Snow White and feel like they were a kid again, not that there was anything wrong with, you know, it wasn't like he was made exclusively for kids, even Disneyland when he Fantasia opened it up. Fantasia
3: sure as hell is not exclusively for kids. Exactly. Uh, no. You know, yeah, I mean, like, there's there's
2: nudity in Fantasia. Yep. And I oh, I give me, the, give me that Blu-ray. Give me oh, give me a 4K disc <laughs> Give me a 4K disc of that. Uh, like I said, heavy metal Disney. Just keep giving me some stuff like, <laughs> paint on the side of
3: a that's, van. And that's, but
2: like, from, that's a code movie.
3: That's a code era movie, but centaurs, I guess, weren't covered by the Hayes code.
0: Well, and even I, with Fantasia, and we're doing Fantasia next season, but you know, I, I, Tom and I went to see that in theaters. He had never seen it before. Um, Cause it was kind of this thing. Tom mentioned he was starting to watch snow white. Cause he was thinking like, Hey, I want to know these Disney films. And of course, he mentions that to me, and I have the entire, you know, I'm 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 deep diving through all this stuff. So I'm like, here, take, take all this. The, you know, do you still
2: have the white clamshell VHSs somewhere?
0: Oh yeah, of course I do. Okay, good.
2: You've never seen this house. This house looks like the freaking warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones, but for <laughs> top <laughs> men. Yeah, top men. I've met the top man that runs that house, and he is psychotic for merchandise.
0: I oh believe me, I you know my. If I had to pick the most obscure piece of of Disney merchandise in this house, it's got to be either my Nutcracker in the Four Realms full-size Nutcracker (laughs) or my Hot Toys Tonto. Uh, It's going to be one of the two.
2: That uh, Nutcracker in the Four Realms was obscure as it was in theaters.
0: Oh, God. I saw that opening weekend.
2: We're
3: being inspected by top men. Oh, boy. (laughs) Top men.
2: Mickey Mouse has now gotten so large, he is floating over the city of South Park, raining fire down upon (laughs) the (laughs) citizens.
0: But I I with, with Snow White there's something about the fact that he really did something remarkable. I think about Snow White to me is less what he was trying to do with Snow White is less make a film for children as when uh when you look at La Belle et la Bête, the French uh Beauty and the Beast that would eventually inspire the American one. Are you which talking about was, the Jean
3: Cocteau. Uh, yes, the Cocteau. One? Yeah. Yes,
0: which it opens with this whole title card that's just like I want to make you feel I want to use the power of cinema to make you feel that sense of wonder that you haven't felt since you were a child.
3: So the, the editor of Sergeant sub, if I can just throw in something on Please. that, um, our editor was a guy named Mark Solomon and Mark had been, uh, he edited chicken run. Um, he, he edited, he was an assistant editor on space jam. Uh, he was with, um, Shrek before Shrek became a fractured fairy tale. Actually, it was kind of interesting when it was still a Chris Farley vehicle, mm-hmm. um, before oh, his wow. death. And so, uh, and so, Mark, when we were talking about some of the ideas for for Stubby and using the film in it to to do this true story um, storytelling, and Mark made a point that has stuck with me, and I I will say that we didn't necessarily listen to him at the time, but it's something that's worth like keeping as a as a check on on what we do. That animation is too expensive just from a nuts and bolts like you know how how it how it gets made it's too expensive to not be fantastic um and yeah. what he was saying with that is like if you're going to do something in animation it needs to earn animation um and so one thing that I'll give Walt in in this and I, I again I actually like Snow White I mean I'm a fan of Snow White oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of Walt Disney but i think in in terms of this walt while he was saying to his animators that the, all of your gags need to be in service of the story and not in service of the gag at the same time he had the foresight to realize that the story that was being serviced was not what people were there to see
2: no it's kind of the the you know i i said earlier that you know there's not much you know m- meat on the bone with this movie there's not really much like events it's kind of very thin in that way which in 2020 if you've been raised on a lot more hyperactive storytelling it could feel a little bit like which i think is another reason why maybe a lot of kids don't watch snow White. their parents know okay well they're gonna just lose their minds with this it's kind of slow but i do like with mike the point mike was saying is that he was trying to make something you've never seen before like trying to make you feel something it's like Okay, we, we're doing something for the first time. We can't get like bogged down in a lot of moving parts narratively. I mean, they literally just skip like the story in a title card of like, there's this witch, there's this queen. And they bring in
3: the You're second like- title card at the dramatic crux of the film yeah. because he realized yeah. like, all right, I just did something. Because the animation right before that is scary as all hell. He watched a bunch of Caligari, like Robert uh, Vine, German Expressionist films. Yeah, and came up with the transformation sequence that's straight out of of Nosferatu or the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or Metropolis. um, And then he realizes like, okay, well, something really dramatic has happened and Snow White, everybody thinks she's dead and they're going to put her in a glass coffin. And this is a weird plot point. And how do I get the dwarves from point A to point B? I'm putting her in a glass coffin where the prince is going to kiss her. Ah, hell, I'll just throw in a title card that explains the whole thing away yeah like, i'm not it, even it, gonna try telling yeah. that i'm just gonna let people revel in the
2: animation and well, fast could, forward the story yeah because it's they're really it's it's like you when you watch the movie like i watched it uh this week for it it's like okay this her like the dwarves coming in and like seeing the house has been cleaned up that's like a 20 25 minute sequence of just like slowly like oh look at this what's going on who's this who's here it's like they don't get to the queen like Oh, Snow White's the fairest of them all. I'm going to turn into a witch and make an apple until like there's 20 minutes left in the movie. And yeah, which which I I get, you know, you put yourself in the context of the times and what he's doing. He was smart in that. OK, I want to shock and awe. This is what it is. It's a feature length cartoon We've really had Nobody's really done this before. There may be an example here or there, but this we are going to be the first ones to do it. Big, bright colors, all this stuff. It's got these crazy, scary sequences. It's very fantastical. Again, making it that you make the movie like this in live action, you actually couldn't make it in live action at the time they made it because of how big, weird, and crazy it is. And it's like, okay, simple. As simple as possible so people can just focus on the gorgeous imagery on display, the bright reds, the, the dark, the inky blacks, everything that we're doing here. And it's like, it maybe hasn't aged the movie well like on its own textural terms in 2020. I think people, when you're older, you can appreciate it, but it's like, I get it, you know? Well, I'll
3: I'll throw something else in there that you were saying, like you wish that there was more of an American, you know, mainstream Miyazaki-like culture um, or or that you could do something different. And one of the things for better and for worse, I would argue with Snow White is that you genuinely don't know what's coming next, even though you know the whole story, you know what's going to happen at the beginning, you know what's going to happen at the end. But that sort of like very tight three act structure um, is way looser in oh, yeah. in those early Disney films, starting with Snow White, through until about um, really until you get, gosh, even past Cinderella, because um, Alice in Wonderland is is bug nuts crazy too. But like they don't fall into formulaic storytelling um, at Disney for a for a long time because he was focusing on the on the visual impact and the oomph. That he could yeah. deliver and the emotional impact that he could get. And so the decision to like not introduce the main crux of the story until there's 20 minutes left and fast forward with a title card uh, at, at the very end of the movie, no one would do that now. No, yeah, now, you gotta, now you got to Now you got to sit through. All right. So there's going to be the midpoint set piece and then they're going to do the thing and then they're going to get to the end and there's going to be a big fight and it'll probably start with a chase and then there'll be a couple explosions. And then you got 10 minutes of Dana and one reprise of the main song. Like, and, you know, we, we know that.
0: And now, it's interesting right? you say that because it made me think of what Walt did with Snow White and what he did with a lot of his early films. Uh, if you take out the 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 first batch of live action films that were produced for tax purposes, yeah. that no one no one talks about the sword and the rose anymore. But if you set those aside, what he was doing when he was really involved in movies and especially the animation was the same kind of thing that when Spielberg and Lucas talk about what their idea where their idea for Indiana Jones came from, uh, they talk about this idea of well, what if we could just take all the exciting parts of a movie and cut out the rest and just put it all together. And what he's doing with Snow White and what he's doing with Pinocchio is really just that idea of like, what if I just take the stuff that's fun? What if I just take the stuff that I want to see in the movie? What if I just do that? What if I just take the moments that stuck out to me from the 1916 Snow White or all these? You're right. You mentioned him watching the German Expressionist films, uh, The which transformation was based on Jekyll and Hyde. The man was a huge uh, I mean, cinephile. You know. That
2: that sequence when she runs through the forest is straight up just horror movie stuff. I mean, there's no yeah. doubt in my mind. Sam Raimi had that in mind when he was making uh, the first Evil Dead.
0: And and even on that, one of my favorite things to note uh, is, and I'm um, you know I, I'm talking to you guys, but I'll say this to the audience um, that in Italy during Mussolini's reign, uh, any movies that were deemed scary were banned. Right? They were just forbidden. Uh, anything disturbing and when mussolini's reign ended and the fascist reign ended the first s- disturbing film that was allowed to be played was snow white yeah and so an entire generation of these giallo filmmakers who grew up under mussolini guys like mario bava guys like dario argento um fulci i'm assuming is of that same era yeah and these guys their perception of snow white is not you know, how we see it here in America, which is whimsical family classic good for kids. It's, oh, this was the thing that was too scary. The government banned it. And so when you look at all those posters for those old jello films, there are so many of like women covering their faces and screaming with bright colors that look like they were taken out of the snow white forest sequence.
2: I mean, this is it like watching I've watching it now. i've this is the first time I'm watching it since learning that fact. It is really wild that to know that because it is like a proto-giallo in in many ways. I mean, most giallos are about a dark-haired, pale-skinned woman being haunted by some monster with some nonsensical, elaborate reason to destroy her, which is, I mean... That's this movie. You know, it's it's more about not so much three act structure or whatever. It's not like very linear. There's this nightmare logic thing to it. It's all about the bright colors. That's that's Snow White. That is this movie. It's and it's wild having that lens on it and being like, oh wow, I I can a hundred percent see Dario Argento thinking about this when he's writing the bird with the crystal plumage or Suspiria, which isn't giallo but same. It's an Italian horror movie. It's the same thing. Um. Yeah, it's wild watching it with that lens over
0: it.
3: Yeah, I actually didn't realize that part. Um, that's really interesting. And and you say that and, you know, the like Italian films that are haunting and terrifying to me are the neorealist ones. Mm. Uh, you know, those are yeah. those are just harrowing. Oh, yeah. Um, the Italians. I mean, were- you you oh, don't, don't,
0: don't find. Rome- Rome- Sorry, Jordan, you don't find Rome open city just a barrel of laughs.
2: Oh, yeah, it's... uh, The Italians, no matter what genre they're doing, they just go to 11 with everything. (laughs) Oh, we're making a neorealist movie about how life sucks? We're really going to make it about how life sucks.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Umberto D just haunts me to this day, Um, and I haven't seen that in 25 years.
0: A special day is especially unsettling now, so (laughs) Uh, really just a haunting one. Um, I do want to note, too, when Tom was mentioning how scary it is, one of my favorite facts, and Tom hates when I bring up theme park stuff, but it's even more relevant now. Well, please don't talk
3: theme parks. I love it. Oh,
0: yay. No, but Tom, Tom, I think you'll dig this. Jordan, now you know, I'm assuming, uh, but I'll tell Tom about the original Snow White ride, right? hmm So, Tom, you may not So, the Snow White ride, one of the earliest rides in Disneyland was called Snow White's Scary Adventure. And it was this idea, Walt had the idea of, oh, people will want to ride the ride from the point of view of the character. So Snow White never shows up in Snow White's Scary Adventure because you're supposed to feel like you are Snow White, which means that in the ride, you are initially subjected to a bunch of trees and, and things trying to kill you. Then you see the dwarves briefly. Then the ride ends with just watching the witch uh, trying to drop a giant boulder on you and kill you. And then she falls back and dies. And that's how the ride ends. And they had to change it because it was too disturbing for people.
2: Right, that's that's pretty metal. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah.
3: You can't. You can't. And the new one at the Magic Kingdom is actually pretty awesome too. I mean, the the, 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 the Seven Dark ride. Line Train. Yeah, that is yeah. really really cool. If you haven't had a you chance think, to ride that,
2: uh, you think Spielberg and Lucas went on that ride and that's how they came up with the boulder sequence in Raiders?
0: No, they stole that from a Donald Duck comic. Uh, which <laughs> so I don't. I can't even. What
2: happened with Inception?
0: Yes, I can't even get into Carl Barks. That'll be a whole year-long podcast. I can't even. I, I just got my la- uh, my newest volume of the Fantagraphics Mickey Mouse comic strips. I'm I'm too deep down the rabbit hole. But um, I do want to talk... Tom was talking about the visuals in terms of Giallo. I mean, I really want to talk about the fact that part of what makes this stand out, especially compared to the other films of the time, and even looking at the ones that came later, is just how much care Walt put into the art. I mean, he was an oh, artist himself, and he would do that throughout his career. I mean, obviously... Uh, if you look at the uh, the work, I'm blanking on the artist's name right now, uh, who uh, worked on the backgrounds of Bambi, uh, Tyrus Wong, mm-hmm. Tyrus Wong on Bambi or Ivan Earl uh, on Sleeping Beauty, which uh, Tom knows I, I adore uh, the art of Sleeping beauty uh, and Snow White, too. I mean, you look at that and it's just the backgrounds are so exquisite, really detailed. And
3: Well, one of the things with Snow White that you see is the beginning of that very Disney formula. But that still exists to this day, even in the CGI world. But um, make the backgrounds uh, pristine as, as close to, if not photorealistic, at least have a degree of, here's, a, here's an SAT word for you, verisimilitude. Um, like make sure that, that the backgrounds and the environments feel real and lived in and tactile. Um, and then you can slap your, uh, your goofy characters on top. Um, and yes. and let the characters have that sort of cartoony personality, but really pay attention to the art in the background. Um, and that's one of the things that, again, with these with Snow White in particular, um, the notion. And I think it's just a Depression era notion of like standards of beauty, right? But the idea that in order for the backgrounds to be as beautiful as they are, and and for the the funny characters to be as funny as they are you had to have this sort of like elevated, um, non-funny, beautiful version of the serious humans, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you wind up with like this, this weird noseless Snow White um, and, you know, weird noseless Prince. Or when you get to the next film, uh, Geppetto and Pinocchio have a ton of character. And then the ultimate beautiful uh, beauty of the blue fairy shows up. And nowadays she looks really weird. Um, but to to Walt and his audience's eyes, oh no, she's beautiful. Uh, and everybody else is silly looking. Um, but using that that sort of standard of of deep focus, um, beauty with with the character designs for the, you know, important characters and this really art uh, painterly quality in the um, in the backgrounds. Well, I say painterly, but painterly, in, in fine art tends to refer to something where you can see the brush strokes, you can see the artist's hand. Um so in in Walt's case, that's actually not true. They were they weren't photorealistic. They might be somewhat impressionist, but you don't get into like painterly abstraction until the sixties when
0: Well, you get a little bit of that you know, in the backdrops of Bambi though.
3: You get a little that bit of, well, it gets more impressionist in the backdrops of Bambi. Yeah. But um, but sort of like you know, Tom was pointing out, Disney is very cyclical, and I think the entire entertainment industry is cyclical in this regard. Oh, yeah. where, where you have about 20 years of runway before something's got to give. And yeah. Disney had had, in its case, basically 20 years from 37 to 57 of making films that, that had a very similar approach to art, and things that deviated from them really didn't do well, like Alice in Wonderland um for its time because it was it was too out there but when they got to the 60s god we got to change it up and you get 101 dalmatians um and 101 dalmatians you know the the art style in that you start seeing the sketches on the characters you start seeing that wolfgang reitherman like sketchy characters and and just bold ink swaps uh in the background um so that sort of like deep focus uh uh photorealism is is gone in favor of something new, but then they still manage to integrate it in what I think is you know sort of like if the the greatest of that first generation is Pinocchio, the jungle book um where they're doing uh they're doing deep focus in in the jungle book and they're doing painterly leaves and and backgrounds, and they're also doing very sketchbook quality uh uh characters and things on top of it it's really really an an interesting um blend of art styles and a blend of of narrative styles because that's another movie where i genuinely don't know where it's going to go next
0: and Uh, and it's funny you mentioned the sketch style because that's one of those ones that i feel like the the sketch style weirdly creeps in just as walt is uh on his way out. out yeah yeah and then it gets so bad to the point where, um, and I love the way it looks so sketchy and scratchy in Hundred One Dalmatians, but then you skip a couple years ahead to the Rescuers, and it's almost unwatchable. It's too much. It's yeah. so much, and
3: and that's where like you you had okay, we need we need something new, we need something different, and so you get Hundred One Dalmatians, you get Sword in the Stone um you get uh you get the jungle book which was also the last animated film that was in production um at the time of his death and after the jungle book you get robin hood which i have very fond memories of i love it again my son is six he loves it but it it definitely has quality control problems um, when you when you separate the nostalgia and the the joy of Peter Ustinov's voiceover in that, <laughs> and then yeah, you get into the rescuers and everything, and into the eighties when Don Bluth came in, they tried something different, but it just wasn't clicking. Um, and so you know the the Eisner Disney Renaissance comes in after that and takes them back to uh, I I was reading something in preparation for this that the last film to use a multiplane camera was um, the Little Mermaid.
1: Oh my God!
0: Oh, Jordan, oh, oh stole, my Jordan, God! Jordan, you stole. Jordan, you stole my ending. You stole my <laughs> ending.
3: Were you so excited to have a Little Mermaid fact handy?
0: I will. Uh, now, now, I don't know if Kyle will keep this. Or not. Uh, literally, at the end of each episode, what we do is after you know our guests leave, Tom and I pick a different film to go in the registry. And my entire argument for Little Mermaid, like I was telling Kyle beforehand, is, well, actually, it's interesting. It was the last film to use the multiplane <laughs> camera that represents. And I was, like, so proud of myself that I was like, this is going to be such an interesting point.
3: And- <laughs> All right. Scrap it. Scrap it. But I'm going to tell you this. Bro, keep
0: it in. Keep it in. We uh, need to keep, keep Mike humble. Keep it in and double it. No. Um- <laughs> right. So
3: so uh, uh, let me just ask you this. You know, I'll, I'll be the interviewer now. Um, what's
2: the first movie you guys remember seeing in the theater? Um, for me, it was the re-release in the nineties of Oliver and company.
0: Uh, for me, it was Pocahontas. I vividly remember that because I remember that we were sitting in the theater and it got about, uh, five minutes in before the film burned out on the projector and we had to move to a different theater, which is a thing that no child today will understand.
3: I had that happen to me three times on the matrix.
0: (laughs) Well, Tom had that happen. If If we can dip away from Snow White Tom, please tell okay. your story of your film burnout because it's the best film burnout. so story. me and my friends went to the midnight
2: screening of machete, and oh, wow it was like the third shifting into the third act, Jessica Alba gets on a car and she's given this big speech, blah blah blah, we gotta go fight the bad guys, and as she's given like she finishes her speech, and she's like, "rah, you know arms in the air, yeah, it burns out. And we think because me and my it's friend, were like, movie, yeah. Oh. yeah, we were the only like 10 people in Nassau County that apparently saw Grindhouse based on the box office receipts. We were like, oh, this is part of the joke. We started laughing like, oh, yeah, this is great. Ten minutes go by. We go, OK, something's wrong here. And 10 minutes after that, the manager comes out. It's like, OK, guys, uh, sorry, but the film bit burnt up. Uh, we can't finish it tonight. Uh, <laughs> come get your free passes and see it whenever. So uh, I still haven't seen the third act of Machete.
3: Uh, he kills a lot of people. Um, Get out of here. Yeah, Machete kills.
2: Get so, out of here.
3: So I've had uh, three film burnouts. Two of them were on The Matrix, and one of them was on the Nicolas Cage movie Snake Eyes. But um, <laughs> on The on the Matrix, my dad and I tried to see this movie three times, well, the first two times, and, and the first time there was a burnout, and the second time there was a burnout, and the third time there was a head wrap. And the projectionist comes downstairs holding the lens in his hand. <laughs> and uh, and so the manager uh, gave us passes to go see whatever we wanted. And we went, uh, The Mummy was just about to start. Um, and so my dad and I go in to see The Mummy. And the whole, I don't know if you guys remember The Mummy, but the whole beginning is in oh, yeah. subtitles yeah. apparently.
2: Oh, yep. God.
3: And I say apparently because that theater had the uh, the aperture too wide And so the subtitles were on the floor and uh, eventually the manager came in and like twisted a button and it was fine. But that was 1999. I never knew what they said at the beginning of The Mummy until earlier this year. (laughs) I've gone 20 years not knowing what that what that was about.
2: Well, you see, this is the experience we need to preserve—the this pure theatrical <laughs> experience of everyone making a mistake and ruining your night. Yeah, yeah, the fire
3: alarm going off right at the uh, right at the critical juncture in Harry Potter also, one.
2: Yeah, just just quick aside: the '90s, the Dracula, and the '90s, the Mummy—they're they're they're better than their original movies. Next, uh, next, uh, let's back to Snow oh, White. Yeah.
3: So well, we'll go with that. But the reason I asked that question is
2: I actually have two answers. The first movie I
3: remember seeing on the theater, one of them was a drive-in. And so um, who framed Roger Rabbit at the drive-in? And oh, my, my family went and uh, like set up a campsite in the drive-in. And my dad like had a Coleman stove and was cooking dinner uh, while Amazing. we were watching Roger Rabbit. But the first time I remember, and I know I'd been to a theater before, but the first memory I have like burned into my brain is at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, California. And if you guys don't know what it is or if there's anybody listening from Oakland, they get it. But it's a one of the old school movie palaces. It's a 1920s movie palace with the lights that's still there. And on Saturdays in the main theater, um, there's a Wurlitzer that comes up from the floor. Oh. And so they'll have like the organist before the movie and everything. Um, and I remember the beginning shot of uh, of The Little Mermaid. Um, and that, when that ship passes by and that just blew my mind in, in a way that nothing else has, you know, before or since, because I was, I was four and that just completely wrapped, like movies can do that. Um, you know, and then later I realized that I'd seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit and went, oh my God, movies can do that. Uh, but when you're a kid, you don't realize the the complexity of animating live action and, uh, and hand-drawn hybrid.
0: We talked about that on our. We talked about that very feeling uh, at the opening of our Star Wars episode. That idea of just like, if you love movies, it's because you went to the movies, and it's exactly what you said, uh, which is you went to the movies, saw something, went, oh my god, they can do that, and then you've been chasing that high ever since. Like that's what we love movies for.
3: But but I will say this too, like for as much as the Little Mermaid just blows me away, and the music is still so good in that. And the, the animation is just brilliant and beautiful, but like we've been talking about with Snow White, when you actually parse down the story, there's not a lot there.
0: No. I mean, she because it was, it was the same, it served the same purpose in a way, which is to kind of go like, it's, it's getting us
3: to, and we'll, but it's funny because we talk about animation and it's like, yeah, the whole point was to get us through the musical numbers and the, the plot be damned and it works. But then you say the same thing about an action movie and it's like that movie sucked because they were only just trying to get us to the next car chase.
0: Well, see, that's what you think. I, we, we grow up. <laughs> we we're from Brooklyn where there's a lot of hip genre folks and they'll basically tell you who needs a story. Look at how many cars blew up. So, you know, it goes both ways. <laughs> yeah.
3: I, and and then there's like the oh, no, well, everybody else hates the A-team. I'm going to love it. Um, <laughs> and, and incidentally, I do love the Liam Neeson A-team.
0: <laughs> yes, we all yeah. we all have one. Such a we great all, movie. Team was we, great. Apple, that, it was too. amazing.
3: Yeah. The, the line overkill is underrated. I have used that so much in everything I do since that movie <laughs> that came
2: movie, out. I, I, that <laughs> movie should have had like four sequels by now. I'm very disappointed in Hollywood and the country in general. But uh, that, uh, been a, that's been a constant disappointment for everyone in the last four years.
3: Yeah, we've we have completely failed the world. Uh we have failed in our role as a world leader because we haven't greenlit more sequels to the
0: H That is that is <laughs> the, that was the first time America was hitting its downswing. Yeah,
3: that's it. We're the the end of the empire right there.
0: I I would like to point out that anybody tuning into a podcast about the National Film Registry is not expecting a team conversation. Not A-team, not and not only that, a- I'm a- putting
3: a- that up like that's my you, you want a movie in the National Film Registry. What says America more than the A-Team? <laughs> and
2: not just the National Film Registry, the episode about Snow White. Snow
3: White. <laughs> <laughs> the episode about Snow White turns into an A-Team <clears throat> fanboy. Off.
0: I, yeah. I, I really appreciate this. And I'll just say this, Jordan, I really appreciate it because, you know, we didn't know what we were getting into having you come on. And I was kind of like saying to the guys like, let's just make sure he might not be prepared for how, you know, off, uh, off topic we can get and, and into weird. And nope, you're right there with us. Oh no, really that's what it. the joy been, of this
3: yeah. is. I mean, that's, <laughs> I can actually send you some stuff that we haven't really shared on social media, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll uh, you're welcome to share them. But, um, the people who make animated films, you know, there's sort of a misnomer. I mean, I was the one who, who, you know, pulled, pulled out the obscenity card to describe the fox and the hound. <laughs> um, so people who make animated films uh, nowadays, especially went to art school, went to film school, you know, have have sort of like twisted influences. And just because you have, you know, some out there influences, or doesn't mean that you can't make something that's really appropriate for kids and, and fun for all ages. Right. So there was an artist on the team at Micros in Canada, and they had a whiteboard in there. I think he was on the, um, the the previs team, uh, which is basically like 3D storyboard. So you get the storyboard, and then it goes to the layout guys and the pre guys, and they basically recreate the storyboard, but starting with like popsicle sticks um, in three dimensions so you can plan your camera movement. Uh, and then that gets redone when you start adding in models and everything else. And then the animators take those models with a wireframe puppet inside, and then it's actually like 3D animation is puppetry. Um, they even refer to it themselves as, as being puppeteers or doing puppet animation. Um, but anyway, so I think he was on the, on the layout team, which is not somebody who draws, you know, the layout guys are computer guys. They're, they're not artists, but on the whiteboard every day, he would redo a scene from a movie or like an old movie poster about but turning it about stubby like he did the poster <laughs> for aliens with stubby um there was stubby gump like full metal olson, uh it, it's just wild the stuff that he came up with like stubby is the terminator um and and he was doing it all on a whiteboard so he just had like four dry erase markers uh but he would do these crazy drawings every day and I got I, I would just when I was in the studio because I wasn't there all the time, but whenever I'd go to Canada, I'd make sure to just hang out in this dude's booth every day, um, to to see what he'd come up with next. <laughs> uh, like say hello to my little friend, and it's yeah, like Olson and Stubby with Tommy guns or something. It's, it's <laughs> absolutely wild.
0: <laughs> oh man, this is because we are we are we are. I promise you sincerely, we are legit Stubby fans here. That would be <laughs> oh, yeah. that would be. He he, he was know. the best of the boys. I mean, Tom, if I may sell you out a bit, Tom, Tom's Letterboxd review is my favorite. 1917 would have been better if Stubby was there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got to go to Letterboxd and look this up to give this person the uh, credit she deserves. Um, But the best Sergeant Stubby review on Letterboxd says, uh, and I quote, this is from a woman named Ava. Anyone who has beef with Sergeant Stubby can eat my whole ass.
2: Is, is that like my long lost sister?
3: <laughs> it's actually right below your uh, 1917 would have been a lot better. <laughs> if <was> in it. <laughs> but yeah, that that is my, my favorite review I've ever seen of anything.
0: <laughs> oh, man no so that's great Uh, i want to touch on one more snow white thing while we're yeah Uh, while we're while we're here just uh before
2: we transition to something else it's just uh you know we're talking about the animation and all that you know yeah um uh, mike is mike's known me a long time he knows my feeling on this that um just because you're the first doesn't mean that you know i necessarily think you're the best or you should get like forever credit or anything but like snow white's like kind of the first to do it and like it it deserves all the credit in the world because it still looks great. Like it didn't just yeah. have, it didn't like to go have a f- half measures with this thing. Like it looked, it at the time must have been mind blowing. And even today, you look at it and go, okay, this like looks good. This wasn't just a thing of like, oh hey, we're gonna do this thing, and you got like a limited budget and like not much time, so just throw it on the screen. This is like I no, mean- this is art. This is real. Art and we haven't
3: we haven't said anything about this really, but also the music is
0: good. That's what I was about like, to touch on. That was my really next step.
3: Yeah, w- is legit yeah. good. I mean, the silly song is a
2: hilarious song.
3: Um, well, everyone's work knows. is a great yeah. thing.
2: Everyone yeah. still knows that. Like, like we said, even if you've never seen Snow White, you know, whistle while you work. Yeah, you I do mean, hi ho's, do ho's do a banger.
3: Show. So, like, <laughs>
2: high <Hi-ho slapped.
3: laughs> yeah, ho <Hi-ho> slaps. Yeah, high ho slaps. This is fire. Can I? So, can... <laughs>
0: <laughs> i i i truly love my favorite thing is how much tom and i both are like we are not going to curse on this episode and jordan the amount of times we're gonna have to bleep you is delightful to me. <laughs> truly delightful but uh, to the music the the one thing i will say about snow white is it does suffer from the thing that any movie from the 20s or 30s has which is any woman has the voice of I'm wishing for the one. and every man has one sh that's it. Those are the two tones that yeah, you were allowed I, to have then.
3: Well, and I that was... that goes into like their their weird noseless thing too. Yeah, like, there's a there's a standard for beauty and there's a standard for like propriety in in songs, and this is what leading men and women look like. I I you know, off the track again, but contemporary my son has become obsessed with the marx brothers and i feel so proud by this but (laughs) but every like snow white sounds like margaret dumont yeah um and and you know prince charming sounds like zeppo and one of the things that's so great about the marx brothers is their dudes at the time who are who are like mocking that they're they're using margaret dumont to make fun of that snow white kind of sound but snow white in order to have that like mainstream beauty aesthetic um has no nose in this weird warbly voice and and that's just what was yeah past as good
2: i was gonna say there's really like one real thing that i just that really just gets on my absolute nerves in this movie and it's it's snow white's voice it's 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 like a nightmare i i can't even like not even just the singing stuff like just her talking i'm like what what is this who speaks yeah. like this it's but- it's but to be defense to, towards it as
3: well, um, not only are we separated by some some time and some cultural, you know, evidence of our standards of beauty, but that was also the hardest part. Like yeah. animating animating a a photorealistic or something that would pass as photorealistic, especially without rotoscoping, it was the hardest thing they had to do. So I think that there also might be an element of them them coming up with like short their own version of a shortcut. Uh, for, for her look and her, her voice, that, that very obnoxious, super high pitched breathy, um, thing was just, again, more shorthand to be like, you know, the character now, you know what she sounds like, you know what she looks like. We're going to look at some, some deer, like we're going to, we're going to make more rabbits do stuff because that's fun. And that's actually weirdly easier, uh, for us to make compelling.
0: Now, Jordan, I, you know, I'm I'm sure, of course, you know that Sergeant Stubby uh had a career in vaudeville around this time. So, you know, when you're when you're planning for future adventures for Stubby, you're gonna need some of those some of those warbly lady voices and some yeah, of those big uh, big we've boom already
3: and... told the artists that they can't put a nose on anybody.
0: Great. Fantastic.
2: Um, well, was,
3: was, be completely featureless. I
2: yeah. was gonna suggest that uh any potential uh, Stubby sequels should be uh kind of your version of uh Tintin of just uh you know <laughs> <laughs> this guy getting on adventures and his super successful dog helps him out. And you got um the what, what's the Gerard Depardieu's character's name Gaston? Gaston. He's running yeah. around. He's like he's like um what's his name in Tintin the Andy Serkis character just running around drunk and just like Captain oh, Hat, Captain Hat. Oh you Malingerers! Just getting into some shenanigans during a Fordville like murder mystery or something. <laughs> I think that yes. would be pretty
3: cool. like so, the nice guy so, yeah.
2: with the dog.
3: Yeah, we that's you know, you're you're kind of on to it. You've you've figured out what the plans are going well. That's right. why I'm where I'm at, <laughs> and that's why they pay you the big bucks.
2: That's why that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's why I'm where I'm at. Uh, nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think honestly, like, I, I, I could make a joke out of it, and make it a bit like the dwarves. Oh, they're great, but like, I do think there is some like. Truly, like great animation magic going on with them because they all—they all kind of look very similar, but through the magic of their animation the, and the you know the gags or whatever, but like that you you get a real great sense of each one's personality just through the animation. I mean, you don't even need to know that they're like what their names are. Like you just have the have it muted and just be like, okay, I get who each of these guys are, and it's um. Just uh, and also just the smart shortcut, not even shortcut, but just a smart way of knowing like, okay, we if we make dwarves like they could maybe tilt over into being too gross looking or weird looking or whatever. But like they settle on this great way of like with the big noses, but those big eyes. So they look kind of cute, even when you have Grumpy just being a big old jerk. You're like, oh, look at that that cute little guy. He's such a jerk. I love this guy. I think the dwarves (laughs) are kind of the um, kind of the kind of the centerpiece to the movie. It's like Jordan was saying before, like it was kind of made around them and then they kind of had to, they started whittling it away. You can almost kind of feel it in the movie of just like, yeah, these guys kind of get like the, the good stuff. Like that, like kind of all the iconic stuff.
3: Yeah. They're the, they, they are the star of the show, but to, to the credit of Walt and, um and I mean, you say Walt and the team and certainly animation is a team effort, but when Walt was in charge, Walt was in charge. Um, and Walt uh, knew the s- new story. Um, he knew gags first. This was his first attempt at really telling a story. And in this uh, case, he really knew h- how to meter the gags and how to how to spread them out for maximum impact. Um, yeah. And how to make sure that he was he was, I, like I say, either you're the Marx Brothers, where every single joke is a hit or you're something else that, that winds up just being like a groaner. Um, and he, he knew exactly how to make every joke he left in a hit. Um, and that was by focusing on other things that, that really, uh, always showcased the art. Um, so I'm going to dazzle with you with the art, and then I'm going to hit you with a joke that's really going to land. Uh and it's it's just that's masterful. I mean, that's good. Storytelling, that's good stand-up, that's good, you know. I mean, listen I'm, to Pat Oswalt talk about the the craft of stand-up and that's what he's doing. You know, is you're setting
2: him up. These guys are like at the same time, they're doing like Abbott and Costello bits and three Stooges bits. Just it's and they're all like really just yeah like was making sure they all work there's not a single like thing the dwarves do that i'm just like ah well that's not really that funny it's just like no these are all just great bits even um what's his name bashful i think oh no doc who's like he he keeps getting these tongue twisters and he keeps well no 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 no, 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 no." it's just these like yeah and doc is like the straight man
3: and and yet they managed to figure out a way for the straight man to still have jokes yeah, it's like um, it's
2: it's an, it's Abbott and S, like stuff with him, but then you get like three Stooges kind of gags with uh Dopey and and Grumpy and these guys. It's it's just great. Like so, all the jokes aren't all one note. They're not samey. It's like there's a variety for each of these seven dwarves. It's pretty, you know, in tandem with the great animation bringing them to life. It's okay. They're, they this stuff is funny, and it's still funny because it's not like relying on references we're not going to get or maybe some outdated uh racial yeah. elements yeah, there's or nothing anything. racist
3: in snow white like yay yeah, yeah hey look i dumbo has some great stuff in it but damn that's yeah uh, that's a tough yeah. one
0: uh i, I want to throw okay. out one i want to throw out a pair of dwarf facts uh while we're here one is that uh walt was they had a bunch of names for the dwarves that they were considering. There were, you know, everything under the sun. Uh, Walt was very stuck. Oh, yeah. They were looking at names like Hickey, Gabby, Nifty, Sniffy, Lazy, Puffy, Stuffy, Shorty, Wheezy, Burpy, Dizzy. But Walt was stuck on Dopey. He was like all about the name Dopey. And when he kept pushing Dopey, the animators pushed back and said, that's too modern. The name is too modern. So Walt made his case and said, absolutely not. You know, they've been uh they've been using the word Dopey since Shakespeare. Dopey's in the works of Shakespeare. No, it isn't. He just lied. And they kept it in. He literally exactly. just said, Oh, it's in Shakespeare. They went, okay, and it happened.
3: One of the one of the short also had Slutty on it, which yep. I'm wondering what a what a nineteen thirty-seven kid-friendly adaptation of that name would have been.
2: <laughs> Well, I feel like I feel like that must have been the replace the first draft for Sneezy because that's a Sneezy. Certainly a personality trait to give someone. (laughs) 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 Oh, crap. I can't say slutty. Uh, he, uh, He sneezes a lot. This guy sneezes a lot. Yeah, that's the ticket. (laughs) <laughs>
0: uh, while they're, while the animators were going up on the roof of the studio and sunbathing naked to taunt nuns, uh, which is a real thing they did. God bless them. Uh,
2: also, the dwarves, uh, like Walt, are uh, anti-union, because uh, if you watch <laughs> the way they work, yep. uh, it's very much not a union job. I mean, they could all just they could be taking breaks, going one at a time. You know, They don't all have to be working at once. This is very anti-union stuff, and I gotta say, it's uh, pretty damaging for the kids. That's uh, another good reason why uh, some good Americans today should not be showing it to their children. Uh, unions are your your friend, uh, vote. <laughs>
0: <Hoffa>. <laughs> oh my don't god, vote would...
2: Tony Pro, don't vote. Tony Pro, you vote for Hoffa. He is a friend to America.
0: Oh man, he Jordan. I gotta tell you, Tom went into this so like put together, and you've got him cutting loose. God bless you. My <laughs> other, my other dwarf fact is that they wanted to do more with the dwarves. The dwarves were popular characters, but they were also a real pain to animate because there were so many of them. Uh, there were plans for a sequel. There were plans for a sequel short called Snow White Returns that were going to recycle gags they had cut from the original film, and they didn't go through with it, and Walt was very not a big fan of doing sequels. The only time we really see the dwarves again during Walt's time is during World War II, one of the earliest uh, propaganda films that uh, Disney made was they took, it was two shorts they had, they had three little pigs and seven dwarves, and they took both and redubbed them to be about buying war bonds. And then just like went back in and added the dwarves like taking, you know, redeeming their jewels for war bonds and stuff.
3: You know, that's interesting because come to think of it. Yeah. The only dwarf even to this day that gets any crossover is Dopey. Um, yeah. Like you never really see the other dwarves well, show up in in stuff in mass. But you'll see Dopey like cut out on his own.
0: Dopey um, gets like- crossover. Yeah. Uh, grumpy is the universal symbol for this. Is the shirt we're gonna put on Dad because it's the only thing yeah, that's that true. he'll be happy wearing in a Disney park because he's a grumpy son of a gun. Tom, if he has kids, will have so much Grumpy merchandise from them. Uh, yeah, oh, I, I look,
2: I look like Grumpy. Um, you hundred percent do. Um, I was also, I, I also just didn't even think about it now. But just talking about like you saying uh, there was too many of them. They, it was too much to animate. They only they give the dwarves four fingers instead of five. Like Snow White has five. And the dwarves yep. have four, which is I didn't even really yep. come to think of. It's like they probably like, oh my god, there's seven of these goddamn guys. Uh, wh- what what could we possibly do besides making and, them all look kind of similar? Uh, not they only have that. four fingers, perfect.
3: Well, and not only that, but you also got to remember that like this is before you had a walk cycle. So nowadays, even if it's technically hand drawn, it's still being hand drawn on a computer, right? Yeah. And so you can recycle elements. Um, mm-hmm. They're not recycling anything here. You know, yeah. They're not. They're not just running off Xeroxes. Of of these things, so yeah, they they had to redraw everybody every time. If taking a pinky off somebody is the trick, all right, fine, lose it, chop it. You know, I'll get you a toe by four o'clock today with polish.
2: (laughs) Forget about the forget about the freaking toe. (laughs) Oh man, dwarves
3: were in your hands.
2: (laughs) That 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 those dwarves really tied a room together, man. (laughs) Oh Uh, boy.
3: I'll, you know, I'm gonna say this like as as sort of my parting shot on Snow White and Disney in general because I mean, you know, technically I'm I'm in a business that, you know, my my movie went down because of Avengers Infinity War, so you know the 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 House of Mouse has done ill by me, and yet um, I love everything about it. I'm a, I'm a big Disney fan. I'm a big Parks fan. Um, you know, my son's room has a, a graphic border of all of the incarnations of Mickey Mouse from 1927 to 2010. Uh, and I have a, a Horace Horse Collar and Clara Cowbell or Clara Bell Cow shelf that was my mom's uh, from the <laughs> 50s, like as his little bookshelf. Um, but one thing about Snow White, and it's kind of mm-hmm. like uh, something that we've been sort of repeating over again, but that it's it's a film and a demo reel. And sometimes yeah. people make demo reels that suck as movies, right? Yeah. And sometimes you make a movie that's really great, but it doesn't really wow anybody. But this movie is one of those rare examples, especially for a first out of the gate, that they were able to make a demo reel that that still uh, that still passes um, the sniff test. And like to to contemporize that, you know, Disney over times has done things that'll make your jaw drop and things that are really lasting and really fun. Um, when you're a kid and when you're an adult, and I think probably the the best Disney animated classic in in total would be the Lion King. um from the from the animation to the storytelling to the songs to all of the stuff. I think the Lion King really, really hits, checks all the boxes. But a lot of people were um, really, really down on the the, I guess you call it a live action remake last year. I mean, the whole thing is one hundred percent CGI. I liked it um, because I didn't see that movie as an example of trying to, like, callously cash in on the success of The Lion King. I saw that movie as a a new crop of Disney animators putting together a demo reel um, and using a tried-and-true story and and tried-and-true songs to to do their demo reel with.
2: I also felt it was kind of experimental because, like, I, 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 I had this conversation with Mike because, like, it's... It's kind of easier to do that story animated because you can uh, anthropomorphize, you could give them a little more human features, make them have more expressive eyes, they could, you know, it's a little, it's, so to to recontextualize that story with realistic looking animals and you can't rely on those animation shortcuts to make them look less real, I felt was kind of an interesting experiment
3: was, yeah and i thought it i thought it worked for what it was it was not yeah. i i would argue that it is not any more a remake than julie Taymor's broadway play um yeah. which is all of the same songs and all the same story beats except with these giant awesome puppets yeah uh in a in a totally new thing so to me i saw the 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 1994 lion king being I, I mean, it's even not that original, you know. It, yeah, it's technically the first Disney film with an original story behind it, but that original story happens to be Hamlet uh, meets Kimba the White Lion. So, so, like, The Lion King, just like Snow White in 1937, you would not call it an original film, but it's an original interpretation of a very familiar story with, with jokes and songs that are guaranteed to land. And story that's allowed to progress as it needs to progress. And then a couple years later, they redid the same thing on Broadway to show off a a different version of that. And last year, they did the same thing with CGI and and realistic animals that I thought was really cool for what it was um, and and not a remake. And I think that that's kind of like permeates throughout the Disney. Just like every couple of years, they have a creative reset uh, on the animated side. Yeah, but I thought that that that's just something else that Walt set them up to do is always be experimenting, um, and and to make your experiments land for an audience to make them whimsical or fun or yeah commercial, um, you're going to have to give people a story because that's what people respond to. Uh, it, you've you've got to give them a story and you've got to give them something to to lock into, um, and that starts with with Snow White and continues through everything else they do.
2: And uh, also it gave us Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner as Timon and Pumbaa, <laughs> who I think were better than the original because uh, Seth Rogen's laugh coming out of A Warthog, A+. plus. Billy I... Eichner screaming at everybody saying, uh, there is no circle of life. It's more like a straight line. I'll be honest. I did
3: not know that Billy on the street was a character <laughs> until I heard <laughs> him as Timon. And I went, oh, Billy Eichner can sing. And he's like a normal human. Uh, because I just knew, well, I knew him as Craig from Parks and Rec first and then mm-hmm. Billy on the Street <laughs> Clips. Um, so he's just always so extra that it's, it's funny that, you know, as, as Timon, he winds up being, like, way more normal when he's a yeah. meerkat.
0: Now, Jordan, before you go, let's talk about Stubby Squad. I want to make sure we get that in. I want to make sure we can tell folks about uh, Stubby Squad and the continuing uh, future of our, our well, little first off dance. He's a good boy. He's the, he best the best boy, pet. as I said, yes. as I
2: said in my review. He is the best of the boys. Yes,
3: yes. Uh, Sergeant Stubby, fourteen out of ten, would pet.
2: Um, so fourteen out of ten would own.
3: <laughs> no, he would own you, uh, Sergeant. Sergeant Stubby had no owner. Sergeant Stubby had a had a, had a comrade in arms in Robert Conroy. Um, so we kind of touched on it earlier, but Stubby's story doesn't end at the end of World War One. Uh, it actually also doesn't begin with World War One because he had a life. Now, it's not a documented life, but he did live on the streets of a major industrial city, uh, New Haven, um, at the time, which is a really interesting period in American history because it's the time when the modern world we live in comes into uh, existence. Um, so these guys were all working in, in factories and mills, and 50 years before World War One started, we were shooting at each other in this country, Right. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, World War One's is the first time when anybody says like, all right, yeah, you're not from New York, you're not from Alabama, you're not from Connecticut, you're not from California, you're from the United States of America, you're going to wear the same uniform, you're going to fly overseas under the same flag, and you're going to help our allies. Now 100 years later, that, like, that's what we do. Like, that's the American military's thing. But this was a first generation that ever deployed, um, which also means they were the first generation of guys who ever came home. And within a year after the majority of the American Expeditionary Force returning home, uh, there were more cars than horses on the road. You couldn't buy a beer and women could vote. Their whole world changed while they were gone. Um, so what we're using, again, through this like dog's eye view of history with Sergeant Stubby, is looking at as he came home, the first thing he and Comroy did was uh, become vaudeville stars um stubby went on a vaudeville circuit in uh and around new haven at the same time it was a it was owned by a guy named sylvester poley and poley was the largest um theater owner on the east coast but he had like regionals like his his big theaters were in new haven and like scranton uh and and buffalo he didn't have any in the in the the bigger cities um but uh poley was also introducing like cartoons uh, as as part of his act. And uh, I don't know if you guys are aware, but who the first uh, recurring character animated franchise was. You know, here's your trivia question.
0: Char- animated character franchise? So you're not talking Windsor McKay, Gertie the no, Dinosaur. No, I'm not talking Gertie no. the
3: Dinosaur. That was 14. But the first recurring yeah. character appeared in 19, and it was Felix the Cat. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of Stubby performing on Vaudeville and having an animated dog watching a 2d felix the cat rubber hose style um you know there's a lot of stuff that we can play with both historically and introduce the this period that a lot of people don't really think about you know like there was a period in time when women couldn't vote in this country again the kids who have never grown up seeing uh, the wizard of oz don't know that um or, or not seeing snow white or any of this other stuff you know like this this generational gap um you know don't don't realize that so Seeing, uh, using Stubby as a catalyst for this period in history. And then after the war, or after, after his vaudeville career, uh, Conroy became an early agent of the Bureau of Investigation, the precursor to the FBI, during Prohibition. He actually set up field offices around the country when the FBI were fighting the, the gangsters during Prohibition. Um, so there's like The Untouchables starring Stubby uh, coming down the pike. Um, he also invented the halftime show. Uh, so when they were at Georgetown, he would go out and perform <laughs> tricks during football games and at pep rallies. And he's actually the first ever credited halftime performer. Um, so there's a lot of, of stuff that Stubby's kind of like this little Forrest Gump dog. Um, but all of that are the the big rocks we're trying to do. What we realized is, again, you know, being realistic, uh, don't open a movie uh, at the same time as Rampage and The Avengers. Um, that the audience, is, there is an audience for this film and this kind of storytelling, but opening in box office that wide without enough marketing dollars to compete with what Disney and Warner Brothers were just going to be, you know, pumping phone numbers into their P&A budgets, um, we realized that we we have to take a different approach to get these stories and to get this period and to get this storytelling style um, recognized. So that's why we came up with the Stubby Squad. And the Stubby Squad is sort of our our Patreon-like uh, model where there's an annual subscription or a or a monthly subscription. And Annually, it's $49.99 at once or 4 dollars a month. Um, but that gets you access to some premium content that we've created. Like there's an eight-part documentary series called In the Pot Prince of History where Richard Lonnie, the director of the film, actually retraces Stubby's steps across uh, across Europe and goes to the real trenches that Stubby was in. And like that scene where they're living in the caves in the film, um, he actually like goes spelunking in the caves where people have carved their names in and all of that stuff is still there. Um, so so we have in The Paw Prince of History, we have a Cooking with Gaston series uh, which is a graphic novel cookbook um, teaching French cooking for kids and gardening lessons and, you know, things about seasonality. So it's actually like you can get all of the, these French recipes that, that kids can try at home using ingredients that they're going to be able to get from a Safeway um, or, or, you know, with farming lessons that you can do as urban farmers in Brooklyn. I mean, like it's, you know, we wanted to make that, that, you know, quite kind of uh, green aspect part of this as well. Um and finally, this is actually available for anybody. Uh, it's a free webcomic that's written by Scott Christian Sava, who is the writer director of the Netflix uh, show or uh, cartoon uh, Animal Crackers, um, and Tracy Bailey, who is an artist who's worked on like Kung Fu Panda. Um, Scott also wrote some Spider Man for Marvel, uh, but he wrote a, a stubby comic strip. Um, so I call it a comic book. It's actually a strip, uh, which I, you know, I'm, I'm an old, like, uh, Bloom County and, and Pogo fan, you know, Calvin and Hobbes guy. So I love that we have a strip, uh, available, um, and that's free. So by joining the stubby squad, you're helping us not only get to the point where we're creating more feature films, more, you know, TV series, all this other stuff, but also creating more of this content that people can, you know, integrate into their lives. Like I said, at the top of this, all, um, one hopefully positive outcome from everybody going inside, uh, during, during this COVID-19, especially if you have kids is, um, getting more time and having, having to come up with more things to engage your kids in meaningful activities at home. Um, and so by having things like cooking with Gaston or reading, my son loves the comic strip and he likes to pull it up and we read it in voices together. Um, so we, we like voiceover perform, uh, the comic strip. Um, but having stuff like that for all ages to engage not only with, yeah, engage with history and history is important and, and education is important, but also you know, kind of looping back into, into Walt Disney on this, engage with storytelling um, because stories are how people learn and stories are how people communicate and stories are how people grow. Uh, and even if you say, oh, well, I don't like history, now that means you don't like memorizing dates in school. If you tell me literally anything that's ever happened to you congratulations, you just told me history. You know, Tom telling me the story about the the time his film melted watching Machete. That's a historical event. Now, the, you're probably not going to get that on like an AP test in high school. Um, but- Don't try me. <laughs> well, when you're running the college board, I'll make sure that, that that's put in. But like that's to, to us at Fun Academy, that's one of the really important things is giving kids a chance to engage with the world that they live in And uh, that also means what happened before right now um, and how you can use what happened before as part of like your daily thing now. Uh, And the Stubby Squad is the way that people can help us do that. You know, if you like reading the comic strip, help us make more. Um, If you like doing the cooking with Gaston recipes, we're also doing those as narrated stories with, um, shout out to our our friend and voice actress, Sissy Jones. She's a BAFTA winning voice actress who does a lot of video game work. Um, and Disney series, but she's like doing, you know, uh, storybook reading, you know, kind of like reading rainbow style, uh, versions of these French recipes that then we do a test kitchen and in, in my kitchen with my son, uh, you know, testing out like French, French cuisine at six. Um, so it's also his master chef junior audition tape. Um, so yeah, that's what the stubby squad's all about. And like I say, just, just giving our, our fans and our friends an opportunity to engage with, with content that's off the beaten path. Um, that is is commercial entertainment filmmaking but has a has a different uh, approach to that and hopefully a, a different place
0: well jordan you left out one important thing too um if you're a member of the stubby squad you're able to purchase the member exclusive hat that has stubby's little face yes.
3: on yes yes so there is a members only portion of the store that does include the stubby squad hat i can't remember if the postcards but uh are, are members only or not but i really love the postcards they're uh, they're a really cool item that's in there. If you've seen the film, Sergeant Stubby, you'll know the postcard sequence, and we've actually gotten those printed. Um, and if you haven't seen the movie, Sergeant Stubby, you're dead to me. That's um, it's
0: uh, Stubby Squad is stubbysquad.com. People can find that. And yep. as you mentioned, Sergeant Stubby is on uh, HBO Max. It's uh, on all kinds of, of streaming services. There's plenty of ways to watch it.
3: Yep, at uh, Stubby Movie on all the social media uh, platforms. Um, so it's it's very easy to, to find us, and not just in find us, but engage with us too. You know, I mean, we're a, we're a, we're a small team of folks who made uh, I, I think we kind of punched above our weight class um, with the film Sergeant Stubby. And we have no reason to stop. We're we're the little Mac in this uh, in this particular game.
0: And, you know, if you engage with the team behind Sergeant Stubby enough, maybe one of them will come on your podcast to talk about a talk about a film. You know, who knows? Yeah, uh- maybe
3: <laughs> one of them will come on your podcast to swear about uh, old movies. It'll be great.
0: Well, I tell you what, Jordan, uh not only did you come on your po- our podcast and we're so thankful that you are welcome back anytime uh for future seasons. Whether the film is animated or not, if you want to do something weird, you can. Hey, if a couple of years down the line you want to do let's all go to the lobby, we you know, we can we can have a lot of fun. <laughs> I guess The a, pruder
2: film. It's a pruder film. Where
0: oh the Zapruder
2: film
3: is gonna be <laughs> So when I was a teenager, I was really <laughs> into the JFK assassination yeah. conspiracy theories. I actually had a CD ROM of the grassy knoll. I've been to the sixth floor of the Dallas Book Depository. Um, yeah, when you said Zapruder film, I'm like, man, I that's that's taking me back.
0: There are, I will say this with the registry, there are so many ones that I've looked at, and I'm, I'm legit excited for like, what is this episode going to be? Because the first couple seasons, it's all like straightforward narrative films, but eventually we're going to have to do like the story of menstruation. Like it's going to be like, I don't know what these episodes are going to be. And I'm very excited to see what it becomes. And like I said, Jordan, you are uh, welcome back. This was this was so great. I'm so glad you took the time to talk with us. And sincerely, we're all uh, big fans of Stubby. We are all uh, supporters of what you guys are doing next. And let me just say, if you know, when it comes around and Stubby's doing his vaudeville show, if you need a Statler and Waldorf up in the in one of the box seats of the theater, you know, we're available is all I'm saying. You know, all you got to do is call
3: yeah absolutely in <laughs> in some of the concept art we've done there are two characters named uh mr uh mr Henson and mr james uh <laughs> that are sitting in this this really conspicuous box
2: yeah it, it this was uh absolutely fantastic um i yeah I watched Stubby the other day and i'm a I'm a sucker for world War one stories and i'm a b- I'm a big old fan of dogs and that was just right up my alley I was a big fan of it so uh anybody listening to this support stubby support the stubby squad and uh watch the movie on hbo max if you have it and if you have give it another go the boy he's uh he's the best of the boys and uh this was a great episode man i'm very happy to have had you here and like mike said come on uh in future episodes uh if you want to know what the sapruta film episode would be like just imagine this episode but even more disjointed
3: (laughs) yeah but i'm gonna start like throwing walt disney into it anyway. well to be
2: fair he probably did have something to do with it walt was uh, he knew because he, he knew, knew. Walt was so anti-union he knew jfk was gonna make it was gonna break was gonna bring the world back to the commies
0: man i want to note for the record kyle this was the episode where you broke into the main conversation the most
1: you almost um, yeah. never
0: unmute and like several times.
1: I, I almost did a couple of times. I felt like I could actually contribute. And It's so weird yeah. because I actually had that realization. I didn't realize that the memory I had was burned film reel. I could never explain it because I was four or five when it happened. And so I could never articulate what happened. But all I said was there was a problem with the print. And I remember it being, but every time I explained it, it's like, it wasn't, it was different like i remember in 2006 when i saw like superman returns in imax the 3d didn't work so i remember that but that wasn't weird it's just the 3d portions aren't working this i remember being like why and the movie is inspector gadget and it's the foot and I, and it and it, it it burned as the foot is moving and so i just remember seeing this foot constantly tapping and the music is like distorting and i'm like like what is like what is happening and then it just black And I remember being really confused and then the manager coming out and like for the longest time, I could never explain what it was until it was like, oh, what you experienced was burned film. Because in my head, I just uh, always associate with,
0: yeah. If you need to retell that story, I don't know if Kenny and Phil have a guest for Inspector Gadget yet. You know, we can try and reach out to them. uh...
1: Dude, I don't know. I don't know what I could say about Inspector Gadget other than that. I mean, I vaguely remember the
0: Happy Meal toys, which I'm pretty sure was just limbs, right? Well, they were limbs and you put them together to form a full Inspector Gadget. Come on, Kyle. Don't talk like I don't know this.
1: No, I know you do. I think I only ever went to McDonald's enough that month or that promotion to get a leg. So that's why I was really confused when it was like, why did they give me a a, a leg as a happy? Yeah,
0: well, there were seven different toys, Kyle, and, and each one was a limb, but it also became a tool or something. I think the legs became a pair of pliers or something. You were there were each toy. There was leg, leg, arm, arm. There was the torso with the head but that was missing a chest plate because the chest plate was a separate piece and then his hat was a separate piece.
1: I, I would also like to just state that every, it seems like every time we have like an outro or we try the intro, there's always a little, even though you don't want it to be a bit show, there's things in here that could definitely be bits. Um, <laughs> you know, let's see. I mean, genuinely, let's just see. If I wanted to get the Inspector Gadget Happy Meal
0: toys on eBay right now, Hey, Kyle, you know what I the worst get it part is? for $15. Is? Oh, of course
1: You've you You've done this before. What, You've done this before. No, you know
0: what? You know what's upsetting to me? Like, truly, deeply upsetting to me? What? I what? have not thought about or looked at the Inspector Gadget toys since 1999, and I was still able to tell you what each one was.
1: That's fine. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I pulled some random, I pulled out like a random school I used to drive like drive by on my way to elementary all the time out of nowhere. Like never thought about this place or anything. My dad and I were just talking. It's like, oh, I mean, the place next to like the Kaiser. And I was like, where the hell did I put that out of? Like I haven't thought about that place in years. So, but I knew it. So,
0: Now, but Maybe this is it. the kind of thing. This is the kind of thing that happens with the show. And this is what I kind of love about the show is sometimes it can be very scholarly and academic and on the point, And other times it can go off on strange tangents. And, and Jordan, I mean, you know, I will be kind of none of us uh, knew Jordan beforehand. You know, we met through Twitter and, uh, right. you know, not only fit right in, but totally got that, you know, all over the place kind of I've enough that I mean, this is how we're kind of going to we're going to bring it up in the outro. Uh, I did not get to bring up uh, I for- completely forgot to bring up what I normally bring up, which is uh, Oscar stuff. So I'm going to take a moment right now and I'm going to talk about it. Uh, Snow White was not nominated for uh, Best Picture in 1937. Uh, The nominees that year were The Awful Truth, Captain's Courageous, Dead End, The Good Earth, In Old Chicago, Lost Horizon, 100 Men and a Girl, Stage Door, The Original Star is Born, and the winner, The Life of Emile Zola. Now, out of those, I will say, truly, Tom, I think you would really like Captain's Courageous and Dead End. Those seem like your kind of movies. Uh, On the list. Dead End is, is all shot in one stage, and it's just about Humphrey Bogart being a, uh, playing a guy who could never get out of his old town and got stuck into the mob life, and another old friend coming back and seeing how much he's ruined his life. It's a delight. Fun for the whole family. Uh right alley, baby. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves only received one nomination that year for best score, which it lost to 100 men and a girl. You know, that score we're all still humming today.
2: Uh, That's like humdinger of a a soundtrack. That score just fuels my day. I go to the gym and I listen to that. (laughs) Well, I don't go to the gym because that would end up killing me and my entire family because it's 2020. But, you know, back in the back in the before
0: times when Guzzoline was plentiful. (laughs) But uh, the following year, Walt Disney did receive an honorary award for creating Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, recognized as a significant screen innovation. Uh, recognizes the industry and innovation that charmed millions and pioneered a new entertainment field for the motion picture cartoon. And the award, presented to him by Shirley Temple, was one full-sized Oscar and then seven smaller Oscars next to it. But the one thing I find interesting about that Oscar-wise is Walt clearly wanted it. He clearly wanted you know Oscar glory for his feature. Um, The movie that beat Snow White for its only Oscar nomination was 100 Men and a Girl, which features prominently Composer and I'm sorry, conductor Leopold Stokowski, and I can't help but get the vibe that Walt looked at that, went, "Well, if I want an Oscar, I gotta get Stokowski," which is why only a couple of years later, Leopold Stokowski's only other screen appearance besides One Hundred Men and a Girl is in Fantasia. Which, if you guys remember at the beginning, you know Stokowski's over there and in his silhouette, Mickey walks up, "Oh, Mr. Stokowski," right.
2: You got to love Walt and his galaxy brain nonsense.
0: I, oh, trust me, I do. I I miss crazy old rich people. I I miss when like they weren't like just funding right-wing think tanks, and they were just like, I don't know, what crazy thing can I do now? But yeah, so I did want to add that little Oscar note on the end there.
1: Normally, this would be uh, the time where you guys talk about the movies that you want to pick in the National Film Registry, uh, but given that. Jordan already stole your thunder, Mike. (laughs) uh,
0: It seems like the uh, surprise has been ruined. That's fine. I don't need to surprise anybody, because quite frankly, uh, my journey on this was, and I was telling Kyle this before we started recording, you know, to me, what film should go on the registry? Uh, The fact that The Little Mermaid is not in the National Film Registry, despite the fact that it was a landmark uh, film in the history of animation and the history of the Disney company, um, was surprising to me, especially because if you look at that Disney Renaissance stuff, uh, you know, if you already put in Beauty of the Beast, you already put in Lion King. Little Mermaid is the obvious next choice. I was shocked it wasn't in there, but I was a little trepidatious about picking it because I felt it was too obvious, which is not something I should really be factoring in when I pick the films for this show. But, you know, I get a little self-conscious because I'm such a Disney nerd and I don't want Tom to, to mock me. So I tried to think of something else. And what I did was I was like, oh, well, Snow White, first animated feature to use the vertical multiplane camera. Which I have seen; it's a behemoth and it's incredible. Um, I was like, "Let me look up the last film to use the multiplane camera." And as Jordan noted, it was *Little Mermaid*. There's so much to it that's so compelling. I mean, yes, you have the incredible Howard Ashman score, and you know, which he lived to see successful. He, he unfortunately died tragically young, but he was able to see the success of this. Um, it was the film that, of course, launched the Disney Renaissance. It is still a a profoundly moving and engaging film to this day, uh, especially the way that it kind of innovates the villain. Uh, Of course, you know, some Disney films before that did have some interesting villains like Radigan and The Great Mouse Detective and so on, but, I mean, Ursula is just a presence. Um, There's so much remarkable about this film uh, that it's kind of undeniable, and I think there's something fitting about the fact that it is the last film to use the multiplane camera because it does kind of bring it all back around, you know, it, it, is, it is the definitive end of a chapter in the Walt Disney Company in one of the most influential and pivotal studios in, in Hollywood history. And it is the start of a new chapter. So I think that undeniably, I mean, especially because I, I'm thrilled with the National Film Registry and they do induct a lot of Disney films. Um, but I mean, guys, if we're getting to the point where we're inducting Old Yeller. You got to put Little Mermaid in the registry if you're pulling Disney films. That's just that's just it's it's obvious, but it's obvious for a reason. Little Mermaid is my pick for the registry, uh, wholeheartedly and vocally.
2: Well, that is a very surprising pick. Uh, <laughs> I I have just picked myself up off the floor at the late stage twist that pick is. I um, was
0: so proud of the multiplane thing, and somebody else had that fact. Which God bless him, I love the fact that somebody else came with with so much uh, deep dive Disney knowledge. It makes well, me very I, happy. I'm,
2: I'm always happy when somebody can deflate your balloon. <laughs> um, so my pick, um, I didn't want to go uh, with a Disney pick. I wanted to do something different, but I feel like there's really uh, nowhere the way to go but with animation here. So I had to really thank Deep. Um not the biggest animation fan as we got into... Um, don't know the great don't have the greatest historical knowledge about it i I like what i like uh i can't put in any Miyazaki because well he's not american as he's uh i feel like he's probably proud that he's not these days um so I found a pick that I think is um kind of perfect because like Snow White this movie um was doing something new it was coming at a time where animated features were feeling very samey um we were hitting a rut and um like we were talking about uh disney can get into a, get pretty samesy when things are feeling a little dire they kind of go back to the safety blanket and they start branching out and they start failing again um we are we uh get into how uh a lot of anim- most animation in america is very kid centric and uh this very much isn't and um similar to how snow white was doing something different at the time and how we really hadn't had feature length animated movies. And this was Disney kind of saying, this is what we could actually do with this whole thing. Kind of throwing down the gauntlet and saying everything before was kind of a warm-up. This is uh, what the future is. And he, uh, he delivered on that promise. And much like the guys on this movie,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. um, Came in with some great stuff, but stuff that felt like a warm-up. And that this movie was them delivering on the promise of what they could do, and that they met uh, in the future. It is probably my favorite animated movie. And as Mike knows, it is probably my favorite musical. I am putting up South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Uh, I think... (laughs) There's not enough. There's not enough cartoons that just aren't for kids. Uh, it's one of the great musicals of, honestly, movie musicals of all time. It plays like gangbusters. It's like 82 minutes. It moves amazingly. Uh, it's very subversive. It's very smart in its satirical aims, and um, I, I just think you, you, there's you, you need to start representing some other stuff outside of family friendly animation show that this thing could be doing something pretty fresh and uh, South Park bigger, longer, and uncut. I think, uh, I think has to be in there.
1: Thank you for listening. And thanks to Jordan Beck for joining us. You can check out his film Sergeant Stubby available to rent on most digital platforms and join the Stubby squad at stubbysquad.com. You can follow him on social media at dr underscore Magnifico. You can also follow our co hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990. And you can find me at Theatricality with a K. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, Tell us about it at your missing out podcast at gmail.com Thanks again for listening and we'll see you again next time.